This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian LaTendry, and today we are listening to the 1990 Shredster piece from Judas Priest, Painkiller. Shredster piece, love it. <laughs> I don't think I used that one yet. I'm trying to, no. I'm trying to work on my, uh, my puns. <laughs> Excellent, well done. Um, yes, yes indeed we are. An album that I was only sort of passing familiar with for reasons that we'll get into in the show. Um, but before we do, hello everyone, welcome back. This is track one of volume three. It is. Um, after we had a couple of months off. Well, a few months off if you don't count the bonus episode from Volume 2. Uh, and we're all sort of refreshed and ready to go uh, again. Uh, and just in case you're wondering, because somebody did ask this actually at the end of Volume 2, we will be doing the same sort of schedule for Volume 3 where we'll do an episode. We'll tell you the homework before we record the episode and then we'll record the episode an episode once every three or four weeks or so. Yep. Um, partly because... It gives you listeners time to listen to the albums that we're going to talk about before we record and before we talk about them. Uh, but also, you know, once again, because of my schedule, which is kind of a bit nuts uh, at the moment. Well, and we should just briefly mention that, too. Your schedule is a bit nuts by the moment because you have an amazing freaking movie coming out that is based on your graphic novel. And that is Atomic Blonde, which is based on The Coldest City, which just made huge waves at South by Southwest. Yes, indeed. I literally flew back from South by Southwest like four days ago, um, and I'm off somewhere else tomorrow. Um, yeah, it's kind of it's all been it's all a bit of a whirlwind at the moment, and it's going to continue to be a whirlwind uh, because yes, the reception to the trailer and then the movie debut at South by Southwest has been, you know, kind of amazing, <laughs> kind of nuts, uh, and it opens in July, and I expect to be spending most of July doing you know, sort of PR and interviews and stuff uh, about the movie. So, yeah, it's all, as I say, it's all kind of crazy. But my devotion to metal knows no bounds. And so <laughs> I will I will continue doing this bloody podcast, I swear. Well, and then, for crying out loud, there's Queen in the trailer. For, yes, indeed. Like, it's yeah. per- it's, it all works perfectly. So, um, but seriously, I mean, congratulations on that. that. That is huge. And the buzz coming out of South by Southwest was amazing. If people haven't seen the trailer for Atomic Blonde yet, We'll put a link on the Facebook page and in the show notes because it is brutal. It is awesome. It is sexy. Like it is, it's going to be just a fantastic summer movie. Oh, thank you. I certainly hope so. You know, and everybody at Universal hopes so as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, um, obviously. And they're getting behind it. You know, we talked about that a little bit off the air, but they, they are, uh, there's a lot of push for this movie already and it, all the response has been great. Yes, yes, they they have really gotten behind it. Yeah, considering it's a sort of mid-budget movie, uh, right. you know, by, by modern standards, by the standards of something like even a modern Bond movie, you know, it costs like about a fifth of what your average Bond movie cost to make. Um, uh, but Universal are really getting behind it as if it is a huge movie. So you know, obviously, we're all very grateful for that. And yeah, you know, fingers crossed, um, it'll do well. We'll see. Very exciting. So have you been listening to some different albums on your trips back and forth across the world over the past few months? Anything outside of the one we're going to talk about today that has grabbed your fancy? I did listen to that the new Overkill album, which uh-huh. you uh, have been raving about. Uh, I only listened to it a couple of times. It was it was okay. I enjoyed it, but I must admit it didn't sort of it didn't catch me. It didn't stick in my brain. Um, but I did enjoy it. It was fine. Um, 
Uh, beyond that, honestly, it's a bit of a blur. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I will pick up on your Overkill reference because I just saw them in concert last oh, yes. Friday night, I believe it was. It was either Friday or Saturday night I went to see them. That was the first time I had ever seen Overkill in concert. And, and they, they have a reputation for being an amazing live band. Dude, there were they were awesome. Like, Bobby Blitz basically runs off stage in between verses. I don't know if he's if he's got a cigarette burning the entire time that he's going to pick in a drag up or, you know, if it, whatever it is. But he basically like will run off stage. The rest of the band will be killing it, and then right before the the lyrics kick in, he will run back on stage, grab the mic. It, plus, he's you know he's a New Jersey guy, so he's insulting the Patriots fans, and he's having a bit of fun with the crowd. And the pit was I had said to my buddy like I hadn't seen a pit like that since the last time we were at a Slayer show. Like they just they just have these hooks that get people fired up and they have a lot of energy as a live band and they sounded great. And it was a small venue and it just like, it is exactly the type of show that I wanted to see. And it's, they were one of those bucket list bands of like, man, I got to see overkill at some point. And I saw them and I would put them right in there with Testament and Exodus, like just an underappreciated band who has been doing this for a long time. And as we talked about on the show before, there's nothing I like more than a band that is in its later years that just oozes that confidence of knowing what they're doing and being able to deliver consistently. And that's whether it be on a new album or whether it be live in performance. And, you know, this guy's in his fifties now and he's still killing it on the vocals. All everybody in the band was just absolutely killing it. So that just a, just an awesome show. And, uh, finally got myself a nice overkill t-shirt from one of their shows. So it was, it was a great all around experience. Awesome. Yeah, I've seen references, because I'm not overly familiar with Overkill, uh, but I've seen references to them as like the motorhead of thrash metal. Um, you know what, dude? It's so funny that you say that, because I, as I listen to their new album more and more, they are the over, they are the motorhead of thrash metal. Like, they have more sort of rock influence and, like, a, a groove and a swing to some of their songs than any of those other bands that we talk about when we talk about thrash metal. And to me, it gets also more remained, evident every time I listen. But they've also remained consistent throughout their career, like Motorhead, in that they've never they've never strayed from Correct. the path that they set out on. They've never tried to make, tried to sort of change or modernize their sound to fit in with trends. They've just gone, fuck it, this is who we are, like it or don't. Yes, and they have a very, you know, them and Anthrax, like, they they have a very sort of East Coast mentality, and you can feel it between them and, like, the West Coast thrash bands and stuff like that, and so it just, definitely, if you ever get a chance to see Overkill Live, totally worth going to see them, even if you're not that familiar with their music, and the band that opened for them was called Nile, who have also been around for a very long time pretty good, like, they have a lot of Cookie Monster vocal stuff, but musically, (laughs) I was, uh, I was very impressed with them, and they also got the crowd fired up. There was a lot of Nile fans in that crowd, and so it seemed like a good pairing because they really got the crowd fired up. And then Overkill came out, and people were just going crazy. So, yeah, well, stuff. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that Nile, you know, headlined their own tours plenty of times as well. They are they've been around for ages. They're an yes. established, well established band. So I'm not surprised that you know a, Overkill's probably one of the few bands just because of seniority as it were sure. that they that they would support rather than feel that they should be the headliners because yeah they've been around for ages. Yeah, and they had that but, confidence on the stage too and it, and you could tell that they are they're not 
an undercard band, you know, and so it was yeah. kind of cool to see them together and everybody seemed to be getting along good on the tour and stuff like that. My buddy's band, which I unfortunately did not get to see, uh, my buddy George O'Connor is in a band called Swarm of Eyes, and they played uh, in the upstairs the venue before the doors opened for the main show. And unfortunately, I had to work late and couldn't get there to see him, but I ran it to him. So if, you, if you're looking for, I'll put a, a link in the show notes, but it's called Swarm of Eyes, and they just released a new EP, and so they got to play and then I was hanging out with him while they were selling merch and watching the Overkill show. So it was really, it was a, it was a fun night. Swarm of Eyes is a fucking great name. <laughs> I know, right? And they have, uh, they have a full album out, and they just released a new P- EP. And uh, George is a, a comic book creator. And so we often, he's, we've interviewed him for Secret Identity before, and that's how I knew him, was through comic stuff. And right, in one right. day, we were talking about metal. <laughs> and he just drops like, oh yeah, no, I play guitar in a in a metal band, and I was like, oh, it was like that scene from Step Brothers. Did we just become best friends? Yep, right. <laughs> that's exactly what Excellent. happened. So excellent. Um, next up on my concert calendar is Anthrax, which I am taking my son to. We are going to see Anthrax and Killswitch Engage in April. Uh, I have tickets to Metallica in May with Avenge Sevenfold and Volbeat. And then in July, I have tickets to take my son to see Iron Maiden in uh massachusetts so and then i'll be seeing slayer again with lamb of god in late july as well so my 2017 concert list is like so awesome right now i love how this is like the musical equivalent of uh you know dads who buy their sons train sets or board games or video games for for christmas and stuff and it's like because they want to play them and you're like that with your son with I'm totally, what happens now is like I because since, especially since we started this show, like my mentality is if a good band comes around here, I'm buying tickets to go see them. I'm not going to miss any more concerts from bands that I either haven't had a chance to see or haven't seen in a long time. Overkill's a great example of that. But now instead of buying two tickets, because I would always buy one for me and whoever I figured out what I was going to drag with me to the show, now I just buy three tickets. And so uh, if it's a band, the only band that I didn't buy my son a ticket for was Slayer. Because he's going to be 11, and I just don't, I feel like we're not there yet for Slayer. Right, right. Um, just in terms of subject matter and stuff like that. Like, I can justify to myself these other bands. Um, sure. And Maiden, Maiden being a great example. Like, I didn't see Maiden, I saw them 12 years ago on OzFest, and that wasn't even a full show for them because they were on the OzFest bill. So going to see them as the headliner with my son amazing metallica i probably wouldn't have bought tickets to go see metallica because they're like a hundred and something bucks but seeing metallica in the patriot stadium with these other bands that's going to be a huge show and that will be like i'm fine that being the last time i see metallica is with my son you know 20 however many years after i saw a huge stadium gig yeah Yeah. i think i saw them in 1989 it was the second concert i ever saw Oh wow and uh it was either 89 or 90 it was the injustice for all tour that was the last time I saw Metallica. And so now I'm seeing them again with him. Um, and that'll be a lot of fun. So that's crazy. So I've seen Metallica more times than you. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I've only seen Metallica sound once. Right. <laughs> yep. And it was yeah, on I've... the last album that I really cared about from them, which was Injustice for All. And it was, ah. and Queensrike opened for them. It was Queensrike Operation Mindcrime Tour. Uh, so I saw them on that tour, never saw Metallica again. And now I'm going to see them on the album that to me is a closer return to form than, right. you know, to the stuff that I used to like back then. So I'm excited about that. I've seen Volbeat more times than I've seen Metallica. Wow. Um, yeah, I saw Metallica uh, three times, I think, on the Black Tour, because the Black Tour just, you know, never ended. Went on just forever. Went yeah. for years. Uh, I think I saw them three times on that in various 
either literally a Metallica gig or because they were doing a sort of festival thing or, you know, a, a one day festival where it was their gig, but they had like six support bands, you know? Um, and then I saw them once on the load tour, I think. Uh, and that's it. And I haven't seen them since. Um, but yeah, so I know I've seen them four times. Um, I had no idea that you'd only seen them once. That's nuts. <laughs> no. And in the span of 18 months, I will have taken my son to six shows and like, he'll have seen like 12 bands, but he will have seen three of the big four, Megadeth, mm-hmm. Anthrax, and Metallica, and Iron Maiden, um, awesome. and Suicidal Tendencies. So right. like, he just... And, and then, 11, he's going to love the Maiden show, my God. I know, right? Because of Eddie and everything. So, And I was yeah, kind of yeah, telling yeah. him about that a little bit. So uh, the thing is, like, after that, if he could give a crap about metal and doesn't want to listen anymore, like, that's fine. But uh, he and I have already talked about, you know, like, there's certain bands, and especially right now... That if I can take him to see one time in his life, I'm going to take him to see that. Because he may he can, not get a chance to see him again, yeah. Absolutely. And he listens to pop music, and he listens to rap, and he listens to all this other stuff. But he does, even at his age, appreciate the energy of metal and going to a live metal show. And he likes that. And he also likes the attention of, we're now running into a lot of families who are bringing their kids who are a similar age to him. And th- that is something... and parents out there will know this if they take their kids to metal shows like that's very celebrated at metal shows now like that's one of the coolest oh, things yeah. is people are like yeah. oh that's awesome you know when we met mike muir from suicidal tendencies he was talking to me about his like 12 year old kid or something like that as we were talking and he was psyched to see parker there and so that to me is this whole other you know thing that i get out of it so it's really uh it's it's awesome but yeah it's gonna be a huge summer for concerts so i am Fantastic. super psyched all right, a uh, bit of follow-up. Um, we have uh, f- five new patrons since the last episode, since the Opeth bonus episode. Uh, we have Blair Toms, Nick Yoakum, Anti Sumervuo. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. I tried. Uh, Greg Wilson and longtime listener Don Cardenas, who I actually didn't realize wasn't already a patron. So well Welcome done. aboard. Well done, Don. <laughs> so yeah. thank you all. Uh, and with those new patrons, we have now pushed over the $100 pledge level. Uh, which is amazing and wonderful. It is crazy. Thank, thank you. Uh, it also means that I am now under the gun because at the $100 pledge level, we promised to send the full song version of the Thrash It Out theme tune uh, to all patrons. Uh, unfortunately, I am still waiting for a couple of guitar parts to come in from uh, <laughs> from our guitar players. Uh, so, I, But as soon as it, I promise you we are on top of it, and as soon as it comes in, it will go out to you. Uh, and you will have, uh, you know, a very strange theme song that became a song <laughs> the MP3 to listen to. <laughs> yeah, and me, I mean... It, with me doing just, my best Lemmy impression. I think you do a great Lemmy impression, but that's... I'm probably biased, but... Uh, <laughs> and I also saw we have a new Patreon goal. That's bold. Yes, yes. <laughs> the $2,000 an episode. Holy crap, I'm yeah. down for that. Yeah, well, exactly. Awesome. That was. I thought, well, I'll just set it to something fairly, you know, well, not ridiculous, but you know, actually, you know, kind of realistic in the sense that, like, that's how much it would cost for right. uh, for us to go, actually, yeah, we'll do one of these every week. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's how absolutely. much it would cost to justify the time that it would take us to do this every single week. Um, for sure. But hey, you know, somebody wants to pay, if people want to pay us like $8,000 a month. <laughs> yeah, if there's some angel investor out there that wants yeah. to come by and drop a $1,500 pledge on us, exactly, like, we'll yeah. take it. Exactly. There's got to be a rich metal fan out there somewhere, somewhere crying out loud. Somewhere. Lars, get Lars on the phone. <laughs> yeah, just tell him to skip the St. Anger episode. Yeah. <laughs> just thank you to everybody who has supported the show and 
every time I go on the Facebook page and see the feedback and see the discussions that are happening, we just had a probably like a 50 reply long discussion about Nickelback. Nickelback. The other day on the show, (laughs) which, but I love that because of course, you know, a couple times the, the discussion got a little bit dismissive, but overall, like really, there's always a great discussion about a band, a particular style of music, a particular style of vocals. Like people will post stuff on that board and everybody responds and people jump in and have this great discussion. And I just, I love that. I love our community and to see the support for the show continue to grow is very gratifying because I was talking to one of my other friends this morning. I had posted, oh, I'm going to be recording a podcast and I always kind of hint around it. And he was like, um, he's like, oh, is that that new R&B podcast that you're doing? <laughs> and, and I said, I said, you know, now that you mention it, it would be interesting to do a podcast about uh, hip hop and R&B bands who should have been bigger but kind of disappeared from the landscape. I, I was listening to a couple of songs off of a 2014 album from Mystic, and she had put an album out with uh, a solo album out in like 2001, and it was amazing. And then she like dropped off the face of the earth. Thirteen years later, she puts out a new album, and it's amazing. And yeah. to me, like that's much like with a lot of the metal stuff. It's like that's fascinating to me. You have this person who is supremely talented, making amazing music. And they just kind of go away for a while. What happened? What was going on with it? Like, to me, that's a whole subject matter for a podcast. I would love to sort of delve into that. And we got into a longer conversation about, like, part of what we're trying to do with these shows is not only preserve some of the music that we grew up listening to, but have a discussion in case someone stumbles along later on about, like, why should they care about it? Like, what, what was the thing that made people care about Judas Priest? Why... You know, for for people who are coming into metal now and don't know that, or or have haven't really listened to Judas Priest, like, and they want to know why why do people care about them? Like, that's it's kind of awesome to be able to have these discussions and and hopefully well, um, kind of carry the torch for a lot of this music. Well, and also too, uh, in the case of like the two bands we've covered that then split up <laughs> shortly afterwards, I know, right? You know, without producing a huge amount of work, you know, it's uh, there is, I hope, value in yeah, people who might come along and go, "Well, I've never heard of this band, Sister Sin, or whatever," and then go looking in the archives and find their stuff, you know, right? And also because find like, not oh, even there were other anymore. people that were fans of them. Oh, yeah, that's exactly. cool. Maybe I can connect with them. Yeah, and you know, bands that literally aren't producing new music, and so you might not, they might not come across your radar. But you know, we have we have covered them here, and we can't cover every band, obviously. But you know, we're we're covering a lot. <laughs> well, and I, I feel like today, with the way that music is consumed and the emphasis that it has been lost on like putting albums out and that that whole thing, like to me, it just feels like it's so much easier for bands to go away. Or to get lost in the shuffle, or to get overlooked, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. or or never to sort of bubble up to the surface in the first place. And so that's why, like, the Facebook group is so valuable and stuff like that, because there's at least once or twice a week where someone posts about a band that I've never heard of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of them passing, but never listened to any of their music. And so um, that discovery is so difficult nowadays, and having in-depth discussions where people can actually go hear some, somebody talk about for an hour, this is why this music especially to me as a metal fan, or I think is has value. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let me just uh, finish that out by saying, if you are listening to the show and you for the first time and you weren't aware that we had a, a Patreon, we do, uh, and you can support the show at patreon.com slash thrash it out. 
um, yeah, you know, go there if you want to help support, join those people who are supporting us and uh, help us, you know, help the show keep going, help us keep thrashing. And uh, just a, a bit of follow-up actually on the previous episode as well. Um, yes. When I was, when we were listing lyricists, I actually missed Lemmy, talking about Lemmy and Motorhead. Uh, and the thing about Lemmy is like his lyrics generally weren't, you know, like massively profound or enigmatic, because they were fairly, you know, straight ahead rock and roll lyrics. But his, the, what amazed me about Lemmy, he had a 40 year career writing about basically the same like half dozen subjects, uh-huh. you know, sex, death, war, rock and roll, sex yep. again, you know, <laughs> it's just like the same things over and over again. And yet throughout those 40 years, despite all these repeat, repeating themes, they're all distinctive. Like every Motorhead song and every lyric is completely distinctive. That's that's amazing. That you know, for to do that, to write basically about the same stuff for forty years, to music that you know wasn't always incredibly diverse as well, <laughs> and yet make them all yeah. distinctive is amazing. And I continue to find bands that are at further listen very influenced by Motorhead. And we just talked about Overkill in that way. Like listening to the new Overkill album, three or four listens in, I'm like, wow, there is a lot of Motorhead on this album. And so that Motorhead is like the gift that keeps on giving. My my appreciation for their influence continues to grow and I continue to find it in these other bands and other albums that I'm listening to. And it just, I, I wish I had that appreciation back in my high school days and my college days for Motorhead that I do now because they're, they're everywhere. Their influence is everywhere. Yeah. But you know, no regrets. Um, uh, the other thing that I wanted to follow up on was from a couple of episodes before when we did the Halloween, uh, albums where we did Keeper of the uh-huh. Seven Keys part one and two, uh, we were, when I was talking about their history, I mentioned that they really went off the rails with an album called Chameleon where it just like, they, you know, nothing at all like what you would want from a Halloween album. Uh, and that was basically the end of Halloween as we knew them. Um, I I hadn't even got a copy of Chameleon anymore. I, I literally, I, it would appear that I threw away my CD. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and downloaded a copy instead. I went and grabbed a copy and gave it another listen just out of curiosity. And I, now bear in mind, I literally hadn't listened to this record in probably 15 years, 20 uh-huh. years or more. Um, and I have to say, if you reassess it as basically pop, if you reassess it as like European pop rock, you know, rather than thinking of it like a metal album, it's actually not that bad. And I think you might quite like it. There I'm are, down for that. You know, because it is kind of like I say, just imagine sort of light pop rock, you know, sort of, I don't know, like rock set or something in some ways. Imagine that rather than it being a metal album, apart from that windmill track, that really is fucking still, that's terrible. Uh, but a- apart from that, <laughs> the rest of them are actually quite well-written songs, you know, and it's like, I was listening to it going like, okay, this isn't as terrible as I remembered but that's because I'm approaching it now from a completely different right. headspace. Um, and yeah, so I'm going to I'm gonna get a copy of that to you, I think. And you, I think you might actually like it. Have we talked about before that I, I feel like as a music listener, like as I go back and reassess the history of bands that I grew up listening to, I am so much more open to and forgiving of their experimentation periods than I was when I was originally a fan of them. 
Um, I'm, I don't know. See, I've always been, though, because remember, I grew up listening to prog rock sure. and stuff. So the, the experimental side of it, I've always been down for. The problem I had specifically with Halloween wasn't that it was experimenting, because they weren't. there's nothing on that album, Chameleon, that is innovative. There's nothing that is sort of proggy or, oh, nobody's ever done this before. It is just a really soft pop rock album, you know, and a standard right. pop rock album at that. So... I have no problem with the innovation. In the case of that, it was more just that, like, this is not what I come to a Halloween album for. <laughs> you well, know? That, and that's kind of what I mean in that, like, for me, since we've started doing the show, and even it, it, beyond that, in my sort of later listening years, I feel like with Metallica, like, the, I should probably go back and spend some more time with some of those albums that I was not feeling right, right. or dismissive of at the time. Queensryche is a great example of a band that uh, I really fell out of love with them you know, for a long time after Empire and recently came back when, when Todd Delator became the new singer of, of the band. But there's probably some stuff in there that I would look at differently now than I looked at when it first came out, which again was more like, this is what I'm coming to a Queensryche album for. You are not giving me any of that. I can't, <laughs> you know, I'm not, right, I can't right. really listen to this album. So like, I, I do feel like now I'm much more forgiving of like, okay, I can go back and listen to that period of this band and have a different opinion of it now. I have tried that with um, Marillion. Uh-huh. Uh, prog rock band, obviously. And I know your friend Matt obviously shares my my love of early Marillion. He interviewed um, uh, Fish before. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, and the, the Fish era of Marillion, I still maintain, is just some absolutely great. If you like prog rock, you know, that was just a great band. Uh -huh. However, after Fish left them, I pretty much stopped listening to them. And I did actually, at that, I, because I did listen to some at the time, and I was like, no, this is no longer for me. Um, and then, oh, about 10 years ago, I grabbed a really cheap, I mean, it was literally cost me like a quid 50 or something, a copy of their album Brave, which is their big storytelling concept album that they did with the new vocalist um a couple of albums after he joined uh and and i i you thought i thought the same thing i thought oh maybe maybe i'll appreciate this more now with a bit of time and distance but no no i i uh, <laughs> listened to it once and i was like yeah no i almost fell asleep it was very dull uh and so yeah i don't know <laughs> maybe it's different for bands that uh maybe it would be different for bands that i wasn't heavily into maybe i yeah. don't know yeah, that's true, because I do still struggle with, uh, like, I, I have gone back and tried to listen to Megadeth's uh, Super Collider, like, so you many times. You still can't get into that, yeah. I can't, <laughs> I just can't. Like, even even though I could get to Risk, as we, obviously, that that is famously yeah, yeah. You know, rooted in this show, but Super Collider, man, really, really struggled with that album, and I, I just can't, I can't get back around to it. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but let's remember that. Uh, discussion point when we talk about Judas Priest because we have the non-Rob Halford era of Judas Priest that I think that applies Indeed. to in the way that a lot of fans simply reject Ripper Owens as a as a vocalist for that band. But I did want to, before we get into Priest, just briefly talk about some of the feedback we got on Blackwater Park from Opeth, which was our bonus episode. Uh, people were very excited about us doing that, and I yeah, just picked out yeah. a few comments uh, Blair Tom said, love this one. Album number four that you've done that I have any experience with. So I, I kind of think that's awesome that there's only four albums that we've done that he is really familiar with, which means all of the other ones were kind of an introduction to him. Right, and which that, means that, we've done 20 albums that he'd never heard. Yeah. That makes me really happy. Uh, Andy Larson said, first time through two tracks in, and I'm thinking, no, man, if it's all Cookie Monster vocals, I can't do it. Glad I stuck around. 
He said, in general, I find the vocal style to be such a silly, lazy effect, but I like how Opeth uses it as an accent or alternates between growly and clean singing. More interesting than most. Uh, Scott Parker Hall said, interesting take on the album for sure. I totally disagree with most of what you guys said, though, which is not a surprise coming from Scott. Yeah. <laughs> he said, uh, he said, still life, Blackwater Park, Deliverance and Damnation, Ghost Reveries and, Wa- and Watershed are all five star albums in my iTunes, as in every song, which is remarkable looking through my other music. He said, no band accomplished that in my personal library. I didn't even notice that until just now. Which is pretty yeah. amazing. Obviously, wow. that's one of those things he kind of discovered. He had a he had a consistently high love for. Uh, Tony Unsworth said, "Anthony Johnston, in my opinion, Pale Communion, Pale Communion is the peak, full on prog version of Opeth." Um, now, have you listened to that? Because I haven't listened to that. Uh, I have a, no, I don't think so. However, I was gonna. I'll just leap in. We had an email from uh, Ryan uh, Nagi Nagi, not. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce that, sorry, uh, said, uh, Anthony Bryan, I just finished the Opeth episode and figured I would chime in with my two cents. I'm a big fan of Opeth and I really like Blackwater Park, but my favourite albums by far are two later albums, Ghost Reveries and Watershed. Either of those could be Desert Island albums for me. I am also a big Porcupine Tree and Stephen Wilson fan, so maybe his influence on those albums, I assume he means, is why I like those more. Uh, but to be honest, I'm not sure if you will like those more or not. That probably doesn't help much, but I thought I'd share what's my favourite favorite albums uh thank you ryan and i actually did listen to uh i put both of those i found them on youtube um naughty naughty and uh, gave them both uh, a playthrough and they still didn't do anything for me so i didn't listen to that one that you just mentioned but i did listen to these two that were mentioned by ryan when he emailed us and they still didn't win me over i'm afraid uh Dijon said great episode guys one thing i agree with you too bleak is also my favorite track the rest will make it very make uh it very interesting for listening to the record with that in mind my favorite album is still life my entry point in opeth but it is pretty much casted in the same mold as blackwater park uh dan summer says now i love opeth but meandering and samey is the best description for them i can't remember song names or even which songs are on which of their albums of the heavy era. <laughs> That's really bad when you get to that sort of stuff. And he said, like, I can barely remember songs as separate entities. And I think we talked about that a bit during the episode, that it tends to kind of flow together a little bit, which, uh, if not intentional, then is definitely a problem. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Greg Anderson said, I'm totally new to this album and not having had the chance to listen to it as homework. I'm only just working through it now after listening to the podcast. It seems confused to me with Cookie Monster Thrash becoming Pink Floyd all in the same track. This could take a few listens to decide how I feel about it, or at least how I feel about the different parts of it. Um, Andrew Salmon said, I always meant to delve into Opeth, but never quite got around to it, or knew where to start for that matter, so this is a welcome excuse. Still working through, but I have to say the second Steve Wilson's name was mentioned, it all clicked together. I was wondering why the softer, proggy parts had such a familiar sound. My favorite response, though. So, yeah. Oh, go on. Is from Torin. Oh, (laughs) I love her uh, righteous indignation at some of our um, commentary. She said, meh, lifetime movie of the week, DVD menu music, et tu, Anthony? (laughs) And then she said, and Dave fucking Matthews in concert, Brian, what? I love Opeth, love. Of course, you need to get past the fact that they are wanky overachievers who've probably never seen an actual naked lady ever. But once you do that, it's pretty much the best thing ever. I prefer Ghost Reveries to Blackwater Park, and though it would be fun to hear if you would like it better than Blackwater Park, I'm not sure that you would, given the fact that I love all the parts of Blackwater Park that you hate. But maybe just listen to Ghost of Perdition a few times and see what you think. 
So that's her recommendation is to check right. out Ghost Reveries. Well, and that was one of the albums that uh, that Ryan recommended in that email. And as I yep. say, like I did listen to it, and I'm afraid, sorry, Torren, but it it still didn't do it for me. <laughs> yeah. So awesome, awesome feedback about the Opeth episode, and that was one of the. Uh, I like the bonus episodes because they're not something that you or I would pick. And right. so it is true. It, it's like becoming a listener of the show for a minute. And, well, you know, that particular one wasn't. I mean, you know, Trans Siberian Orchestra was your pick, if you remember. That was the oh, bonus right. yeah, for one, one. Yeah, yeah. But this one wasn't absolutely lame. Black and we Ball had a Punk. Mastodon one, right? Didn't Mastodon? Wasn't that a pick of the. Oh, that, that was the Listener Poll album. Yeah. Right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, like neither of those albums were ones that we would have chosen. So that, that does make it interesting. Um, just to keep on the emails. Um, not specifically about Opeth, but we also had an email from a listener, Matt Mason, who says, uh, Cracking Volume 2, gents, some great new finds for me, and even the albums that didn't grab me were interesting and entertaining listens. Looking forward to Volume 3. Thank you, Matt. He also says, P.S. My introduction to Thrash was exactly the same as Anthony's with the infamous Sabbat White Dwarf Flexi Disc. Uh, it was such a different style of music to what I'd encountered to that point that the first time I listened to it, I had it on the wrong speed. <laughs> <laughs> and for the for the younger listeners out there, that was because uh, turntables, record players used to—I don't know if they even still do—had two different speeds: one for albums, one for singles. Um, I think this was—it was—and uh, I mentioned this in the show. Yeah, flexi disc, you know, acetate that you could play on your record player, and the sound quality was terrible. But whatever. Um, uh, but of course, they were printed as singles as seven inches but i think this particular one you played at 33 because otherwise there wouldn't have been enough there wouldn't have been able to fit enough time yep like it would have been over too quickly and it is like a seven minute song or something so uh yeah i think it was played at 33 but obviously your instinct would be to play it at 45 so it's understandable that you get it wrong my god i can't even imagine what that song would sound like what blood for the blood good would sound like at 33 <laughs> that is too funny <laughs> oh crazy um but yeah that's uh that's fantastic matt it's, i have such you know once i sort of once my memories all clicked together and i realized oh my god yeah that was like my introduction to thrash metal um yeah i i love it uh we also had an email from cole dins or dinsey uh who says brian anthony in your not so recent episode about death you got on a brief tangent uh talking death to possessed to larry lalonde to primus and les claypool and he says in case you were unaware and i was unaware cole so thank you for this in case you're unaware larry lalonde and les claypool also played in a metal band together blind illusion oh i uh, remember this email and the album they played on together, The Sane Asylum, he says is one of my favourite music purchases of the past year. If you get a chance, I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, also, I look forward to future episodes of the show. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much, Cole. Um, no, I had no idea about this. Um, I did not know. I mean, Les Claypool, as we've said, obviously, is a fantastically talented and skilled bassist. So, yep. you know, that he would be capable of doing like interesting heavy metal doesn't surprise me in the slightest. But I didn't realise that he had any inclination towards it. Yeah, that was new information to me as well. So definitely something I need to check out, and I haven't yet. Yeah, no, neither have I, neither have I. But I've got the email like sort of highlighted, and I will, I will go and listen to that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that was all. That's all the feedback that we had. Um, so yeah, thank you again to everyone who writes in, who comments on the Facebook group. Uh, the Facebook group is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out if you want to go and join in. Um, yeah, you know, as Brian said, we love it. We love the fact that we are building this community and that it's always growing and evolving around the show. You know, the show is evolving. The way we do the show now 
is very different to how we did the very first couple of episodes. Um, you know, the, it's always evolving. And, uh, you know, as metal is always evolving, that's one of the great things about it. So, yeah, we love our listeners and our community and, uh, you know, do keep giving us the feedback. Absolutely. You guys are amazing. So let's move on to the album then. Let's move on to uh, Judas Priest and Painkiller. Yes. Uh, uh, Judas Priest, I've mentioned on the show a few times before, is they're a band that I respect and admire, but their music has never done a lot for me. Like, it's, you know, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, I don't want people to think that I'm being disrespectful of Priest because I absolutely respect everything they've done for metal. They were, they, you know, have been an innovative band, a very important metal band throughout their career. Um, and you know, and they're from my hometown, as I've said before, you know, that like Sabbath, their local boys done good. I have nothing but respect for them, but, <laughs> but their music has just never really grabbed me. There's a couple of tracks, you know, breaking the laws kind of fun. Cause it's kind sure. of cheesy. Um, you know, hell bent for leather for the same reason. Um, but really, you know, there's, there's nothing in their catalog that I've, gone like oh yeah must listen to that and i realized when i was when you know, when we were doing research for this um my dad who i've mentioned before you know was a big influence on my sort of rock and metal taste when i was a kid i used to raid his album collection he only had one judas priest album uh and people might assume that it was a oh, british steel but no it wasn't it was screaming for vengeance yes which is their uh, best-selling album Right, right. I didn't, which I didn't know, you know, until I, I looked it up. Um, but as I was doing this, I saw that and I was like, oh, I think that's the one. And I looked through and I'm like, oh, yes, I recognize the the album artwork. That's definitely the album that my father had. Um, and I'm pretty sure that I did, you know, I listened to everything in my father's record collection at least once uh, and ended up sticking with things like the Motorhead and the Genesis. So I must have listened to it even as a child at least once and just gone meh. Uh, and so that was why, you know, I kind of never got into Priest. And then as I got older, yeah, as I say, they just never quite grabbed me. But uh, like I said, you know, I don't want people to interpret this as me sort of maligning them as a band because they were so, they have been so important. And a lot of people don't realize, I don't think, how important they were to the early development of heavy metal. Um, you know, without them, metal would be a very, very different place. And I would argue the development of glam metal because mm. of their stage presence, because of the leather, because of the, the the sort of costume aspect of what they were doing. And where I came to Judas Priest was during um, that era of the hits, you know, because of the heavy, heavy uh, MTV play of Breaking the Law, of uh, Turbo Lover, of um, Living After Midnight, that kind of stuff, right, where right. The videos that were constantly on uh, MTV and painkiller which for, for many ways was sort of a not a reinvention of them in some people see it as a return to form some people see it almost as a as an evolution of the band but that to me to this day of the halford albums is by far the heaviest of the halford albums of of judas priest but that oh really that changed a lot of the perceptions at least in my circles of judas priest at that point in time because you know up until that point judas priest kind of I don't want to say straddled the line of rock and metal, but they had plenty of rock elements. Their their more poppy songs were the ones that got heavy, 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 you know, uh, MTV play and stuff like that. But Painkiller is a much more brutal album than 
what was going on before. And as I was looking back through sort of the history of it, so we mentioned that Screaming for Vengeance was their most popular, and that was from 1982. When Turbo came out in 86, Turbo was supposed to be a double album. It was originally supposed to be called Twin Turbos, and a lot of the songs that ended up on Ram It Down, which was in 88, I believe, were supposed to be on this double album. And so I think it was the record company, you can find it on Wikipedia, but basically they, they were not allowed to do a double album called Twin Turbos. And so certain songs got picked for Turbo that had that particular sort of radio rock feel, and then the other stuff ended up, a lot of it, on Ram It Down. And so that was a time where there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of sort of mainstream rock in in Judas Priest. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, Ram It Down when that album came out, a lot of that album featured a drum machine playing drums on oh, the wow. album. And that it wasn't long after that that you had um, Dave Holland ended up leaving the band, and you had. Um, Scott Travis come in. So so uh Painkiller is Scott Travis's first album with Judas Priest and I believe he's still playing drums for Judas Priest today. But that was his first introduction was Painkiller. And so Ram It Down was not as well received as they would have hoped. And in my mind Ram It Down was an album that I thought was really 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 good until I went back and listened to it and Painkiller and Painkiller is such a superior album to ram it down in a million different ways, but most notably the drums for sure. So this was a time where other bands, this was 1990 when, when um, painkiller came out, this is a time when other bands like Megadeth and Slayer and Anthrax and the, and the big four all, all together bands that had been influenced by Judas Priest in their early days were now far surpassing Judas Priest in terms of popularity and album sales and all that kind of stuff. And so this album was sort of there putting back out there. Hey, we're one of the godfathers of this thing, and we want to remind everybody why you are all influenced by us in the first place. And so th- this was very much a statement album for Judas Priest, and it was quite a statement. I find that, okay, that I didn't know that, and that is fascinating. Uh, I mean, for one thing, the drums are probably one of the best things on this album. Oh, they're awesome. So, so that awesome. was absolutely the right decision <laughs> to go with that drummer because yeah, you know, from literally from the very first sound on the album, the drums are just like what drives this whole album through. Um but also I hadn't I mean you're right, obviously I could tell that this is heavier than the stuff on say British Steel uh or what's it sad wings of vengeance or whatever it's called um you know i yes that's all but however i didn't know that it was heavier even than the other stuff they were doing in the late 80s uh, i didn't realize that and that's i find that really interesting because of the way i always perceived this album at the time and listening to it now still kind of think of it which is that it feels really old-fashioned like uh-huh. even for the time, like if this was their attempt to say we're still a relevant modern band, then I'm afraid in my eyes it utterly failed. Because I remember when this was released, I had friends, people I'm still friends with, uh, who were and probably still are massive Priest fans. And you know, like when this album came out, they did. So I did hear it when it came out. They bought it immediately. They played it. They were like, "What a fucking great album!" And I was listening to it and going, "This sounds five years old." Like, if this was released in 1985, then uh, nobody would have blinked. 
But know, when you would, think about that, so think about that year, and think about where music was heading at that period of time. Right, that was that was coming to the end of uh, hair metal and thrash's heyday at that particular point in time, and so you had some fans who felt that slipping away, and then Judas Priest comes out with Painkiller, and that, in some ways, and it's ironic that it was Halford's last album with them until he left and came back for um, Angel of uh, Retribution, but. Um, that was that was one of the last gasps of that type of music for that period of time in my mind because that but, that's when everything was changing but that's kind of what i mean it was the last gasp i'm actually not surprised and i remember not being surprised at the time that this was halford's last album with priest because like i say it, it like it doesn't sound like a fresh album from 1990 and i think halford knew it um this is this album, and again, this is why I went into such lengths earlier to say, like, I really don't mean Judas Priest any disrespect, but this album is exactly the kind of rock stroke metal that grunge and groove metal killed in the early 90s. And I think Halford knew it. And I think, well, he left and formed Fight, which was basically Rob Halford does Pantera. Um, and I think that's why, because I think he knew that this was, that was the end. Like, this album almost quite neatly in a way sort of marks the end of that era of heavy metal when you could do that sort of thing and still be regarded as a really heavy interesting band now i know that priests are still touring i know that in in retrospect people go and listen and they want to hear stuff like painkiller of course they do because it's what they grew up on but as you know sort of somebody who grew up through it at the time and especially in the uk scene uh they were just seen as dinosaurs. You know, even though a lot of the bands that came big in the 90s were big Priest fans. Pantera, most famously, were huge Priest fans. But they didn't want to play what Priest were playing because it felt old. Um, and I think that's the main... That was always the main problem I had with this album, and it still is listening to it now, is it just doesn't feel like an album from 1990. It feels like an album from 1985. Yeah, which, which when you say that sounds like a good thing to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> everything that you're saying sounds awesome to me. So let me let me just say that. Like for me, yes, I wanted those bands to still be putting out, uh, to 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 be clawing to hang on to that era of music that I grew up with. So I was I was very happy that Judas Priest would put out an album that was trying to to um, not only prove that they were still heavy but also hold on to that era of music that I hold so near and dear. I think right. a big thing, too, that factored into his leaving, and, and I know there's there's been much made of Halford's leaving. There was the movie Rockstar that was sort of loosely adapted from the yes. whole Jewish <laughs> priest situation. <laughs> um, Not a bad movie. <laughs> but one of the things that you have to really take into consideration is that this album was, uh, was written in 1989, and they wanted to release the album, but the record company did not release the album. CBS Records decided to postpone the release of the album until the verdict from the Judas Priest trial came in. And in 1990, uh, this was course. when Judas Priest was put on trial for having subliminal messages in their music because a kid by the name of James Vance killed himself, and the song that came into question was Better By You, Better Than Me, which is off of Stained Class from, from 1978. But they were basically accused of putting subliminal messages in their music. This was all playing out before the release of Painkiller. So they have this album that they just recorded that they're ready to put out. And they have to wait until they go through this trial. And if you go back and watch any of the videos from that trial, 
you can see what a mental toll that that oh, process sure, took yeah, yeah, on Halford yeah. in particular, but also the rest of the band. And so then after the verdict comes in, which was in late August, it was August 24th, the verdict comes in where the case was dismissed. September 3rd, they released the album. So now instead of barreling into this, you know, we've put out this awesome statement album and we've, you know, we're back and all this kind of stuff. They got to go through this trial that basically sucks the life out of them. And then the album comes out after that. Yeah. And so that, that's huge. And, you know, to me, I I don't think you can sort of underestimate the impact that that had on the band. Um, And by the way, putting it out at that date, I didn't, I must admit, I didn't know that. I knew about the trial, but I didn't know about the dates and and stuff. Uh, And I've just looked it up. Putting it out on that day meant that it came out five weeks after Cowboys from Hell. Right. And that is uh, that's not good right? <laughs> for an album that sounds that is so much of the eighties than this. And like I say, it's, it, this is an incredibly well executed album, right? Like, you know, in terms of its production, it's playing the sort of, you know, the songwriting in that traditional eighties rock metal style. It's incredibly well executed. If this is what you like, I'm not surprised that it's one of your favorite priest albums, because if this is what you like, it's a really fucking great example of that music. However, yeah, five weeks earlier, this little album called Cowboys from Hell yep. had basically ripped the whole metal scene apart. Uh, and yeah, you know, it's kind of, that was a really bad time to release an album right. like this. <laughs> well, and here's the thing about that. They, so they write the album in late 89. They go into the studio in January of 1990. The album is done by like April of 1990 right, and then they're just sitting on it yeah. and they want to release it so that they can have it as their summer tour album but they can't release it until the fall so they miss that entire summer of having painkiller out it doesn't yeah. come out to the fall they have to go through this trial in the meantime like what a tumultuous time for the band that does and you're absolutely suck. right had that come out in june or may then we're two months into that album before the pantera stuff like their whole sales cycle could have happened already you know yeah. what i mean they could have yep. they could have because it entered the chart at number 26 and it went gold four months later so it was a successful album for judas priest but it could have been a monster album As to date it sold about two million copies so it's still it hasn't sold more than screaming for vengeance but that right. could have been had it been released it could earlier have done. totally yeah. yep absolutely yeah. um yeah, Can I also, so. uh, let's let's not ignore the elephant in the room. The other thing that I want to say, uh, and that one of the things that gave me massive respect for Halford in particular, Halford was arguably the first really big name in metal to come out as gay. For um, sure. You know, and in these enlightened times, you know, even with the current political climate, frankly, in these modern and enlightened times, that doesn't even seem noteworthy. You know, like, oh, somebody... Well, back in, then... So, right, somebody in a band is gay, whatever, who gives a shit? But yep. back then, that was front-page news. I mean, it was fucking huge. And it was a bit like Freddie Mercury in that a lot of people were like, well, that's no surprise. If you were paying attention, you know, you shouldn't be oh, at all sure. surprised yes, by this. absolutely. But nevertheless, in the mainstream world, it was huge that, you know, metal, which has always been... Uh, you know, a very sort of macho culture yeah, and image. power fantasy. Yeah, right. And Priest were one of the bands that helped project that image, as you say, oh, with all sure. the black le- leather and the studs Denim and, and leather. Know, yeah, absolutely. Right, coming on the stage, riding on a Harley, all that sort of thing. You know, they're one of the bands that promoted yep. that uh, macho image of 
heavy metal. And then, yeah, and then their main guy, their front man, came out as a gay man in uh, 1998. It was, so long after this album, but 1998. Uh, and I think he was the first front man to do so. Uh, there had been a couple more, Roddy Bottom, of um, the, who was the keyboard player, I think, of Faith No More, yeah. was, I think, possibly the first in a big band to come out. Um, and I think there were one or two more after him, emboldened by him. But Halford was the first frontman and definitely the first, like, everybody in the world knows who this guy is, uh, guy to come out. And it was such a huge deal at the time. It was massive news. Um, and, you know, as a result, it normalised things because Priest, even then, you know, even in 1998, again, you know, weren't at the height of their commercial success, but they were so respected that it did kind of normalise things. And, you know, I wouldn't say suddenly, but things accelerated and to the point where, as I say, now, even in the still pretty macho world of heavy metal, somebody being, you know, a band member being gay isn't even newsworthy. You know, it probably wouldn't even be a thing that they would discuss or that any reporter would feel the need to ask about. Uh, and a lot of that can be traced back to guys like Roddy Bottom, but also, yeah, big names like Rob Halford coming out. Uh, so, you know, if nothing else, he has done a massive service to, you know, the world in general, and especially the world of metal, with that very, very brave and, you know, selfless action. Without a doubt. Without it, I mean, it's another chapter in him being a pioneer in yes. music, in, in life, you know, and then to have him then come back to the band that he started with and put out music that at Redeemer of Souls, I think was their highest charting album. Uh, the one that they put out a few years ago. So they're making music that is at least critically as well received uh, as some of their best stuff ever. So yeah, yeah, he's, he's just, his story alone is a story that you could do a complete documentary about. And it's, it's absolutely amazing. But when I'm, you I'm kind back, of amazed nobody has actually. Like it's about you know because again, like like Lemmy and that lot, he ain't getting any younger. And you know, I gather that Halford is in pretty good health, and he looks like a sort of you know a guy who keeps himself no, in good isn't. shape. I was thinking uh, it's funny you mentioned his age because I was thinking he's so he is 65 right. Actually, he's 66 now. I think right. Yeah, and you know, he was about 38. Years, he was younger than us when they put this album out. Really? Wow. <laughs> does that blow your mind? Wow. So not yeah, only was he younger than us, the whole band was younger than us when they put this yeah. album out. Jesus. But at that point in time, that album was their 12th album. Right, that was yeah. their 12th album. And I think for a lot of people, like we had people on our Facebook page saying, this was my first metal album. This P Painkiller was my first metal album. Painkiller was my introduction to metal. So for a lot of people, this was their entry point to metal and to Judas Priest. This was their 12th album. And yep. a lot of people don't even know the early history, haven't even listened to the early, early stuff of Judas Priest because it's so different than what they think of now when they think of Judas Priest. And for a lot oh, yeah, of people... You, you go back before British Steel and it's basically like Deep Purple style blues rock. Right, and you, and you sort of have two groups, right? Because you have people who think of that era when they think about what Judas Priest sound is, you know, the, the British Steel era. But then you have a whole other group of Judas Priest fans that are there from painkiller on. So yeah. when you think about the eras of and the evolution of Judas Priest sound, 
Painkiller is the first of a trilogy of thrash albums. It's Painkiller, Jugulator, and Demolition. The two other ones were done by a different singer, but this is a trilogy of albums that has a particular period of their sound, and this was the beginning of it. And so if you think of it that way, then this is sort of the opening salvo of their trilogy of, of sort of heavy thrash albums, which take them through the 90s um, yeah. and into the early 2000s, because Ripper Owens came in 96, and then you had, um, what years were that? I think it was 98 that Jugulator came out, and it might have been, when, it, Demolition was 2001, it was 97 that Jugulator came out, so Ripper Owens comes in 96, Jugulator 97, Demolition 2001. So that's how they survived the that era of music that was in a complete upheaval at that point in time. Judas Priest went super heavy and super thrashy and then came out the other end of that by then having Halford come back for the 2005 album, Angel of Retribution. And I think he came back in 2003, but so for the time that he was gone, which was about 11 years, uh, they went super heavy. Yeah. It's it's maiden and anthrax all over again, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's really really interesting. Absolutely, there's there's a lot of parallels to that. So, but this, I don't think Jugulator or Demolition happens without this album, because until this album, right, right. this was not their sound. Yeah. This is a much heavier Judas Priest than we've seen before coming into this album. Sure, a lot of their songs are. And to be honest, this probably isn't even my favorite Judas Priest album. The more I listen to their back catalog, the more that Sad Wings of Destiny is my favorite Judas right. Priest album. And I almost picked that for this episode. But this album is an entry point for so many people to metal and to Judas Priest that I felt like it would be the better one to discuss. And also because it's Halford's um, you know, Final last album. album. Yeah. And what's in, like, there's so many chunks of Judas Priest history that you can take out and just listen to the albums of that era. Like, if you listen to this album and you listen to Angel of Retribution, fascinating because it was uh, it was Halford's swan song and then his return, and both of them are for people who like this style of Judas Priest music. Fantastic albums, right? Yeah. Then you listen to the early stuff and you listen to something like Sad Wings of Destiny and the influence that that album I think had on future music and stuff like that. It's just they're a band that. I never back in my day was like, they weren't even like a top four or five band for me, but I always liked them. Um, but when you go back and look at their history, like it's so expansive. I mean, this was their yeah. 12th album. That's the thing I can't get over. They were younger than us when they put this album out and it was their 12th album. Some right, bands yeah. don't even approach 12 albums. Well, I was just going to say, how many, how many albums have Metallica put out now? <laughs> That's a great question, right? Have, have Let's they even look that done up real 12? quick? So, Metallica. <laughs> uh, what's the new one? Hardwired, Hardwired to right? Self-Destruct. Is the 10th oh. studio album by Metallica recording the to The 10th uh, studio album. Tenth. Yeah. <laughs> and they ain't that much younger than Judas Priest. <laughs> right. So, Metallica has had a career that spanned from the early eight, so 40 years, right? Uh, or 30 years now. And you have Judas Priest, who was formed in 1969, and by the time 1990 hit, they had put out 12 albums. Yeah. Well, but that that's, you know, that was just the old way of, that was how you did things, wasn't it? Right, you know, you because put they're out more on the Metallica quickly. schedule now. When you right. when you look at right. since since Halford's return, like it was, yeah. you But had, it used uh, to be that you would look at Early Maiden, you know, you would put an album out every year or at the most every other year because you'd right. be touring in the year in between. That was just how the industry worked. So it's it's a little unfair to compare. However... You know, once you get post-Black Album, Metallica 
even in the 90s, that was still the way the record industry worked, except for Metallica. Except for Metallica, right. <laughs> Since uh, Halford came back, you have 2005, 2008, and then 2014 for Judas Priest right. albums, and they're supposedly right. working on one that may come out by the end of this year. Um, but I was going to say, talking about entry points and stuff, actually, this album, I can see why this album would be a really good entry point for people, because it's really concise. That's the other thing. It's only ten songs, one of which is like a two-minute instrumental, so really only nine songs. Yep. Um, and it's only 47 minutes long, which is not by no means the shortest album that we've covered on this show, but it's also far from the longest. You know, 47 minutes is a good, tight time that's like what 23 minutes per side of a vinyl album and the longest song is six minutes right and that's that's perfectly sort of normal and average for a rock album back in the days when they all came on vinyl um so yeah you know and it does for all the you know it's no no spoiler for people to say that this is not you know my favorite album by any means but it does motor along you know uh, you get to the end and you're like oh wow is it over already Yep. Um, you know, it doesn't feel like it drags at any point. So, yeah, if this was your first Priest album and you, you know, you like this sort of music, I can absolutely see why this would get you into them and would be regarded as like, you know, a sort of a landmark album that got you into this band. Absolutely. And the title track, um, if you want to so, jump into the... Yeah, wanna... so, all right, let's start going through the album. So track one is Painkiller, of course, the title track. So the title track, uh, Rob Halford has said, this is what he said about this. He told Kerrang! at one point, um, I think it's a wonderful statement. It embodies what metal is. It's everything a full-on, screamy metal track should have. Uh, Back in 2013, he told Kerrang! He said, everybody is going a million miles an hour on it, and yet the melody still comes across. It's become a very important song for Priest and for metal, too, I think. And the background of this song is that it tells a story of the painkiller who is like this metal angel who comes to save mankind after the world has been sort of plunged into an apocalypse. And so that is very Judas priest to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was, even a, there was even a suggestion that, cause this is the, the front cover of the album. If you haven't seen the album artwork, you know, it is basically this character. He's all like a Chrome angel with wings, riding a sort of Chrome flaming motorcycle like across Ghost the sky. Rider. Yeah. Uh, and there is a suggestion that the, he is supposed to be the sort of modern version of the same character from, I think from sad wings of destiny, uh, the angel on the front of that. Oh, album. I think you, it's that you know album. What? Anyway. You are right. I, I did read that somewhere. You were absolutely yeah. right, which is freaking awesome. Yeah, so it's like, I mean, you know, Priest, apart from their little symbol, the little sort of satanic trident thing, they've never really had 
a character like Eddie or like, uh, what's the Megadeth one called? Uh, Vic Rattlehead. Vic Rattlehead, that's it, yeah. Or or Snaggletooth that Motorhead have had. You know, they've never had that sort of character. This is probably the closest they've got to a recurring character on their album artwork. You just made me want to write fan fiction about how those two albums connect and there's a story that overworks. <laughs> like, I am sure somebody else has already done that. Holy crap. I've, I've, you know, no I doubt. looked for... This is not a concept album, but I did look for... Uh, the story of this because in my head as i'm listening to this album i'm telling a story uh and it starts with this song which has a, a sort of a concept and the rest of it doesn't necessarily follow that but holy crap to go back to sad wings and connect it to this yeah these are probably my two favorite priest albums and so right. that your is mind an, is blown now isn't my, it? <laughs> my, because i remember someone making a reference to that and then when you add to that the fact that redeemer of souls not redeemer of souls uh angel of retribution which was his return album is top to bottom full of easter eggs and references to their history song titles oh, really? lyrics right. all that kind of stuff so now i'm thinking of those things as a trilogy okay i have a lot of work to do after we finish this podcast episode <laughs> extra but, um, homework <laughs> what i love about this song is the first thing that it says to you is meet our new drummer oh yeah 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 i mean the <clears throat> drum intro is like i said the drumming is one of the best things yeah. on this album overall i think and the drum intro is fantastic you know the way it just crashes in and then settles in but even the beat it settles into is still pretty i mean it's standard but it's like oh okay this is going to be a sort of driving powerful beat um my main problem with it is that the riff over the drums is just so standard like i I was listening to it again this morning and i was thinking you know if you took somebody in 1990 if you took somebody like, I don't know, you know, my auntie, who doesn't listen to metal at all, knows nothing about it, and said, what does heavy metal sound like? This, this track is exactly what she would imagine. And in some ways that's good, but in other ways that's kind of like, oh, you know, for a band that has been going as long as Priest and like has been as innovative as Priest in the past, that's not necessarily a good thing. I hear what you're saying, but... On the other hand, all I hear when you say that is awesome, 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 awesome. <laughs> like, like, that's basically what I hear when you say that is. This song is heavy metal. Um, oh, I love what I love it, about this song. It's 1989 heavy metal. Yeah, oh, it's 1989.5. Yes, it's like it's just holding on <laughs> to everything that that was and uh, just turning it up a slight notch. In, in tr- it's basically like trying to hold the door closed from the zombies that are trying to tear it down, and you're just, you're desperately The zombies wearing it. flannel shirts and exactly. cut-off jeans. Yes, and, <laughs> and spilling, cutting uh, their hair uh, off. spilling dark roast coffee all over the place <laughs> as they're trying to break down your door. So uh, that's what it is. You know, they're basically throwing their bodies against this door, trying to keep out grunge. And so, um, but what I love about it are the different, just the little nuances and the little sort of uh, fills and things like that. Like at 20 seconds, there's this great, you know, guitar screech note that just has this descending feel to it. The way the drums are just the double, which again, Dave Holland, who was the previous drummer, not a double bass guy. So you have Scott Travis come in and uh, immediately the drums feel. Yeah. And that's not to take any way away from, anything away from Dave Holland. I, I, you know, I love his work in the band too, but Scott Travis comes in and it is just this pounding. Ga- yeah, there like, are, there are just you- things you can do with a double bass oh. drum that you can't do, you know, if you're only a single kick drum guy. Yeah, and it just invigorates 
what which as you said the guitar maybe maybe those riffs are not the most innovative riffs in the world when you add the punch of those drums to them though holy crap like it all just kind of comes together and it has this it just has this thundering galloping feel to it and the way that they you know it's just the speeded up chugs during the chorus and right before they get into the solo as well like the solo is just like building 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 building, and then just sweeps and crazy up and down the neck all over the place and this was an album where Glenn Tipton and KK Downing were always regarded I think as as notable guitarists in the heavy metal scene yeah, yeah. but I don't know that I ever would have thought of them as like shredders until this album you know oh, what really? I mean yeah, I would have because, thought that was like their entire reputation I just remember seeing the video for Painkiller when it came out and watching it with my friend John, who you know I talk about all the time on the show, yeah. and the two of us just looking at each other like, "Holy fucking shit! <laughs> These guys are just destroyed." Like to me, it immediately solidified them as one of the greatest guitar duos of all time. Not that I didn't think that they were a good guitar duo before, but it was like these guys are bringing it on this album. They have freaking brought, and this is the opening song. And so you have, uh, and by the way, the first solo is Glenn Tipton and then the solo toward the end of the song on this one is KK Downing and uh it's funny that you should I just want to say by the way you said the solo is all over the place like my literally my notes I've just got fret wanking all over the place oh my god it's awesome yeah again you're saying something (laughs) awesome I know like (laughs) this is this is all like uh just eargasms for me left and right because they're he and and what's cool about this album and you'll see it on different tracks, is there are tracks where they trade solos, and there are tracks where they each take a solo in the song. And in this song, Glenn Tipton plays the first solo, K.K. Downing plays the second solo. But the guitar tone, to me, is very razor blady. You know what I mean? Like, it almost has a bit of a Pantera feel to it, which is ironic, because this album was made before that uh, Pantera album, but it has that sort of uh, steel... uh, Saw blade kind of... Yeah, jagged... sound to it yeah um i do think i i I would say i think however the oh sorry who does the second solo kk kk right i i would actually have cut the song before his solo (laughs) because the one i mean you know all all things aside the one act genuine like sort of non-taste if you like criticism that i have about this track is i think it should end at four minutes 33 after the second accelerating tempo bit you know when it's all builds up and the drums are getting faster and faster and it's like that's a perfect place to end but no no we get another like minute long guitar solo instead you know what i don't disagree with you on that i do feel like that there is a point where the song feels like it comes to a natural end and it is at that point and what i like about that part around the 425 430 mark is that it does crash into the main riff again and then you get the you know the hi hat crashing as they're they're playing the main riff i think they could have played that main riff a couple times and ended the song I, I like, think they could have even not even played the main riff, just had the, you know, it accelerate and crash and crash and then just end sure. there. Bang, you know. But either way, yeah, it, I yep. think it is just about a minute and a half too long. Right. Which is a shame, you know, because, uh, like I say, you know, all issues of sort of taste aside, just from a sort of song structure point of view, I think it would be 
an even more sort of tighter yeah. and compelling track if it was just that little bit shorter. But in some ways, that to me is like, we just ate a whole large pizza and there's one slice left. And do I need that <laughs> other slice? I mean, am I full already? Yes, I'm full already. But am I going to eat that other slice? Of course I'm going to eat that other slice All of right. pizza. Am I going to save one slice of pizza? No, throw it in there. So <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about that first song there. But I, I agree with you. They could have ended that, which is interesting because most of the other songs are much shorter than that. Yeah. Well, um, and it's kind of emblematic of the bloat that kind of signified that sort of 80s metal and that as I say that the that 90s metal a lot of no- early 90s metal was really sort of reacting and railing against was bloat. You know, right. th- there became a fashion in the early 90s with grunge with Pantera uh for shorter songs. Everybody was doing shorter, tighter, more sort of punchier songs rather than overblown bloated songs full of guitar solos and stuff um and so once again this is like you know this song kind of personifies everything that was from one perspective wrong about that old style of metal now you may disagree about the wrong or right of it but it really is kind of this is exactly what metal sounded like in yeah. the 80s <laughs> i think one person's wrong is another person's greatest thing ever which yeah, th- yeah. That's, that's exactly what that's exactly it, Actually, this song probably defines our metal tastes. This this is should be the song. Like, just cut this clip of the show out. And if people are like, <laughs> "Where do Brian and Anthony's musical tastes lie?" and like, what's the difference between their the, how they perceive a particular piece of metal? Like, this is exactly that. Because Pretty for me, it's essential. Yeah, for me, it's complete ear candy from top to bottom. Yeah. Um, whereas so now I'm we, just like, oh, get on with it. <laughs> right. Whereas you're just like, oh god, how many times have I heard this riff? And I'm like, oh my god, this is the greatest thing ever. Um, so now we move on to Hell Patrol, which is track two. This song is uh, roughly about half the length of the other one. It's, it's three minutes, 35 seconds. The theme of this song, um, Rob Halford had same, said at one point in an interview that it's about the U.S. Air Force pilots flying missions in the Gulf War. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, which is not what I thought it was at all. Because again, right. <laughs> in my mind, I'm telling the story of this album in my head. So in the first one, we're introduced to the painkiller. The second one to me was like the introduction of... The sort of uh, four horsemen, uh, you know, guard of following, of, following of behind him. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah, his so, coterie, um, which I think it works well, either way. It, it's it's partly because the lyrics. I mean, like uh, all of the lyrics on this album are very metal. You know, again, uh-huh. they are very traditional metal eighties metal lyrics, but they're also kind of abstract. Do you know, like, and this song in particular, the lyrics are so sure, sort of lacking in direct references that they can be about just about anything that's not a bad thing and um, that is i'm that's not a right. criticism um but if you are trying 
to make people realize that this song is about a certain thing. You know, that's kind of hard to pull off when your lyrics are so vague and well, they could and when your and first so song, metaphorical, you know? And when your first song was about a metal warrior. Right, coming right. back a, and a, writing a total this fantasy thing. song, yeah. And then you look at the lyrics for the for Hell Patrol, and it's Chrome Masters, Steel Warriors, Soul Stealers. They're the Devil Dogs, the Hell Patrol. That fits perfectly conceptually with what the first song was painting a picture of. But right. now you read it and you think of oh, uh, fighter planes. Yep, that fits for that as well. That absolutely makes perfect sense. So yeah, it could work either way there. Um, what I like about this song is whereas Painkiller was a very sort of dark song this one even though it's called hell patrol has a very soaring feel which now that i know that it it, that it is about fighter pilots makes even more sense to me um it's like celebratory and triumphant yes it's a it's it's like a war anthem sort of thing which i think we get a couple of those on on this um on this album but this is one and what i like is that as we get to like two minutes 58 seconds they they do this thing on several songs in the album where towards the end of a song, they either play the riff slightly faster or they play it like cleaner or harder to really emphasize the song sort of coming to a crescendo. And there's this great part where, uh, in about 2.58, where he's screaming, ripping our hearts, and the riff is just sliding back and forth. And it it's just awesome. Like, it's just one of those things where they they're doing something a little bit different you know, in the third or fourth playthrough of something that emphasizes this or that. And I, the more I listen to the album, the more that those things sort of bubble up to the surface. And I, I really, I like how they end a lot of the songs on this album. Like the last 10 or 15 seconds of a song is like really hammering home the great parts of the riff or the great parts of the drum beat or something like that. And this is one of those songs where I feel like it ends really strong. And of course his vocals, I mean, he's singing higher then he sings on most priest records consistently. Like on other priest records, there are parts of songs where he goes from low to high. And that contrast is very uh, powerful in a lot of their early rockier stuff. And there's songs where he doesn't go into that at all. Here, he's high almost all the time. Like the, the there is a certain bar that he set for this album that he in yeah. general stays above the entire album. Yeah, although this is one of the tr- this is one of the few tracks where the during the verses at least he's actually quite low, uh, right. and you know, and he still sounds great. I think personally, I think he sounds better. But you know, he I understand the appeal of his like mega high pitched operatic stuff. Um, but he can also be really powerful low. A lot of the guys who do the really really high pitched, you know, sort of Wah! screaming and stuff when you make them not do that actually can't get the power in out in their voice when they go low halford can like might, right the way through his full range he's got that power and projection and strength behind his voice we could have a conversation about rip rowans in that uh in in that sense who is the guy who replaced Halford? right right in, in um but yeah but where i like where he comes up really high is at the end of the song as he's singing over you know as he's singing the hell patrol and as that sliding riff is going back and forth it's super high to sort of end the song, yes, which is. is awesome. Um, I I like I, this is not my favorite song on the album by any means. I do like the driving beat, the drums. This is this is a case where the drums kind of rescue the track for me because they really propel you through the whole song, especially at the start. Like you know, it's all about that driving, uh, compulsive kind of rhythm 
driving you forward. Um, but the, the the actual riff and the melody and stuff is just not very interesting to me. However, the weird thing is, even though it's not very interesting, I will admit that it is kind of catchy. And whenever this comes on, I do find myself nodding along. And I wonder whether it would be a really good track to drive to. This. Yeah, well, and just like because of the way that it, it's dun 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 at the end of every you know way they play, like just that that sort of descending, you know, it's not just that; it's the kind of galloping uh, nature oh, sure. of the the drums as well. The dun 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 and what I like about this song, too, is that he, I think one of the things that Scott Travis does on this album that I really like is that there are songs where he's laying on the snare more, and songs where he's laying on the toms more, and songs where it's all about the bass drums. And in this song, there's a heavy emphasis on the snare, especially when yeah. he's doing that drum, you know, right at the beginning of the song, and it's just, and the snare has such a snap to it that it you feel every hit of the snare. And I, I think like, as opposed to the first song, which is very heavy on the double bass, this song is very heavy on the snare, which I, I like that. And it, it gives these songs that may have a similar structure or a similar like galloping nature, a different feel just from which drum he's emphasizing, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which part of the beat? Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So uh, moving on to track three, and that is all guns blazing. And this is one. This is the one where he the intro is just Halford singing, right? Uh, with like with all, everything else uh, dropped out, and kind of a double edged sword for me because on the one hand it's really powerful. You know, he's got a fantastically powerful voice. The you know sort of it smacks you in the face. Very effective. However, it also really exposes just how processed metal vocals used to be because. It doesn't, you know, barely sounds like a human singing. You know, there's so much, uh, you know, so many effects, so much, re- yeah. not just reverb, but like there's chorus on it and maybe even a bit of flange and stuff. And it's just nuts. It's It barely sounds like a person singing. Um, and, you know, for people who don't remember, that's what metal vocals used to be like all the time in the yeah, 80s. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but it is really powerful, as I say, like that. the sound of it aside because his voice is so powerful uh, and because of the way he phrases it, it does really smack you in the face. And I mean, once again, the riff itself for this song is a bit like, you know, I find it a bit dull, but one thing I really like is the phrasing of the chorus because that's unusual. And you'd expect, you know, the natural thing to do would be to sort of spread 
the words all guns blazing sure. across because they're really short beats. It's really fast, short beats. And you'd expect the words to spread across the music, but instead they don't. And he hits yep. with every, you know, all guns blazing, ba 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 ba, rather than spreading it out. And that is, I mean, for 1990, that was quite unusual. That was, you know, a nice bit of unusual and innovative stuff from Halford. And you mentioned the Sad Wings of Destiny connection. And I had said, I read it. I read it from the lyrics. It's the lyrics to this song. And the, there's a, a lyric that says, bone-crushing alien, god of salvation, sad wings that heaven sent. So they're speaking to Sad Wings of Destiny there in, in talking, I think so, in talking about the painkiller himself. Um, this song to me, outside of that, you know, a little bit about the lyrics, and Glenn does the solos throughout this song. There, there's, uh, this is not a KK solo song. Um, is okay. It's the least favorite song of mine on the first side of this album. Right. Um, I Let's think talk about those solos because they go on for way too long. <laughs> Again, all I'm hearing is awesome, awesome, awesome. <laughs> solos are great. Like I, I, I think you can. I mean, you know, what, what did he say? Solos are over. You know, that was a stupid thing for Lars to say, but. Uh, I think this song is, again, a good illustration of why there was a bit of a backlash against guitar solos in the 90s, why there was a movement against them, because they just go on and they don't, there's no, uh, they don't signify anything. There's there's very little emotional depth to the solos. They're I just kind of, you know, just there. And I don't there for agree a long with time. that with <laughs> these guys, because I think that, and it's I, I roll so hard anytime you even say the name Lars, but in the, the whole like solos over thing, like solos yeah, were I mean, over I, I don't for Metallica, agree with that, right? Know. But solos were over for Metallica because it's the same solo every time, and and again that might be less to do with Kirk Hammett's ability and more to do with the fact that they were very controlling of how he was allowed to play solos on their songs. But do you not feel that's the case with this album? Like I could, I don't no. think I could pick out a single solo and oh, tell you say, which song it belongs to. Note to it. Um, I think there's a. I think the next song, Metal Meltdown, has a, or, or a couple songs has an amazing solo. I think um, there's a great solo in Touch of Evil from I think it's Glenn. Uh, where is it? Is it Glenn? Yeah, the Glenn lead made me my favorite lead on the whole album. It, I thought was a very emotional solo. I I do feel like. There is more variety, although, but I feel like, it, I don't want to speak for you, I feel like your sort of gut reaction to guitar solos that are of any length is sort of that they all kind of sound the same anyways, that they're all kind of noodly and like, I just don't, well, but that, like, that's not, you're that's not, not a huge necessarily. fan of guitar solos. I'm not a huge fan, but the, but then again, you know, I do like a good solo, Um and it's not necessarily collected to length. I just, like, I, I've mentioned this before, my favourite guitar solo is on a Marillion track, actually, called um, Incubus. Uh, and it's a really long solo, actually. It is long. It take, it's about a minute long. Um, but in that minute, it, you know, it tells its own whole story. And, I don't know, it just, you know, it has an emotional feel to it for me that a lot of... 
metal solos don't have. And I know we've talked about, like, ages ago, we talked about Slayer's solos, which are just, like, crazy and chaotic and... You know, feel yeah, like they're, they're just bullshit. Imp- yeah, just improvised on the on the spot. Yeah, and that's kind of that's kind of great in its own way. But I barely even think of them as solos because they're just hitting everything as fast it, as they to, can. For them, this like, it's is just an element that. of chaos that they're adding right. to an already uh, chaotic. Exactly, and this cacophony. is not that. The, you know, right. I, I'll, I'll grant you. Of course, these are these have been written and they're played and again executed perfectly. The level of skill. And, you know, sort of craftsmanship and virtuosity on display is amazing. You know, absolute total respect to that. But the composition of them just does so little for me. It doesn't speak to me. But again, like my my musical makeup is founded in the roots of 80s rock and metal, which is that every song has a guitar solo. So to me, a song isn't (laughs) even a song without a guitar solo. And so that is actually a part of a song that instinctively i look forward to and so i and it's something i expect in every song that i listen to and when i don't it's a bit jarring when i when there is no solo um so i hope solos are never over because that's (laughs) it's one of the reasons i listen to music yeah Uh, i think we can put that down to a face yeah but uh (laughs) but yeah so but i hear what you're saying with that and i think sometimes it's hard to tell glenn's style from kk style at different parts in the album where it sounds like maybe they're trading a solo when actually it's just one of them playing a solo i think painkiller is one of those um but overall i really like the solos on this album i don't necessarily think that this particular song all guns blazing has a tremendous solo it's not one that stands because i do think of the first five songs on this album this is the weakest of those five right I'd say second weakest. <laughs> if you say it's the next one, we're going to fight. I'm going to have to get on a plane, and we're going to have to go fight. Um, well, let's let's talk then about track four, and that is Leather Rebel. so awesome uh, okay you'll be pleased to know that dodgy title aside yes. this is <laughs> yeah. very dodgy title aside, this is one of my favorite tracks this is oh, one of my two so favorite tracks on the album uh Agreed. musically it's really interesting with the fairly unusual sort of low toned riff uh it has some odd unusual phrasing in both the riff and in the vocals and again halford doing a really good job of showing his ability to sing low with power yes as well as high. Um, and the drums. Uh, yeah, the drums are oh, awesome. So it's really catchy. Uh, but one of the things that really sells it for me, just a little thing, the harmony on the chorus line. 
when he sings uh, Leather Rebel, Lightning in the Dark. And then in the background, the, he does There's this a wonderful high, yes. high-pitched harmony. In awesome. the dark! So That's, good. Just, that is brilliant. That fits so well. It's such a great piece of harmony. The tone is right. It, you know, it fits into the line. That's actually is kind of what sells me on the song, to How be honest. How about the fact that you have this just this high pitch, and it just comes in at this frantic sort of pace. And then you get the snare drum just being hammered on. And yes. then the rest of the drums fill like the beginning is so good. And you're thinking, okay, this, this, this riff is fast and it's pretty good. And then they go, like that little turn at the end of the riff, that, that low, just sort of uh, like screechy bendy thing is so good. It just gives the song like this extra, punch yeah I, I, well, and, I and again that. it's a very low toned kind of bendy string oh, as so well good. which is you know it's, it's, it's nice. like this sinister like just uh evil turn at the end of the riff i love that and then yeah. uh, on the song you have uh glenn and kk harmonizing and then kk sort of finishes out the solo as it as it goes along which the first part of the solo isn't so much a solo as them just kind of harmonizing together which i think is super cool um there's also parts in the song where the bass like speeds up where as yes. they're as they're thundering toward the chorus you can hear the bass like almost double time and it and it is in the places where they do it it's so freaking awesome and there's one time in particular like around 136 where you can hear it like a butt in the mix it just like pops out of the mix and it's so freaking good because it it just is like the top of the wave crashing as they yep. go right into the chorus. So I, I do feel like that, like you said, with some of the phrasing and stuff and, and some of the little uh, touches and nuances that they add. And then at the end of the song, right around three minutes where they are driving the riff home one last time. And he hits the snare drum on every chord. Yeah. Oh my God. Is that that like, that is heavy metal to me. And that's chill inducing. Like that's one of those things where I'm just like, this fucking song just ends so awesome. Um, <laughs> well, and when it crashes into the chorus as well, one of the other things about the timing is that he sings, you know, the title Leather Rebel in one beat. Yes. That's like, you know, rather than, again, rather than spreading it out over the whole uh, bar, that's literally over in the first beat, uh, which is, again, you know, like quite unusual. But much as, like I say, this is like one of my two favorite songs of the album, but the lyrics. Are so dodgy. Oh my god, man! I'm almost embarrassed to to listen to it in public. Do you know what I mean? Just well, it sounds like, like he's writing about Christ. himself. Well, you know, well, I yeah. could see my future writings on the wall. <laughs> Legend in my lifetime stories will recall Leather Rebel. Um, right. The the lyrics and the title are everything. Again, everything that it was kind of a, a little bit embarrassing about metal in the eighties, uh, or could true. be if you weren't. You know, that's true. But as someone who listens to Poison and and you know Cinderella right. and all those guys, like not anywhere near the you know the the most cheesy. No way near your threshold. But right for for them, I was kind of like I side eyed this one a little bit. Like oh, okay, this is a little cheesy for them. But yeah, for most yeah. of the stuff I listen to, no, that this is a walk in the park. But but yeah, musically, this is by far the best track on side one for me. Oh, so it's such a good top to bottom, all instruments, all vocal, like just just really, really well put together song. I love this song. Yeah, it really is. And then we get to track five. Track five, Metal Meltdown.
song feels like it is trying to be more epic than painkiller. Um, it's a weird choice for me to be the last song on the first side of the album because it feels like the opening song on the second side of the album. So it's, it's a weird end to me. Although a lot of metal albums did have the trend that back in the day of ending the first side of the album on a real thrasher. Yes. Um, yes. Well, and I think that's clearly when you look at, obviously this would have been the last track on side one yeah. and the next track on, you know, first track on side two would have been Nightcrawler. When you look at the way Nightcrawler opens, it has to be that track Nightcrawler has to be either an opener or a closer. Yes. You can't really stick that in the middle of Correct. the side of an album, especially not an album like this. So yeah. I think that's absolutely, you know, that must have been their thinking of where do we put this track or let's make this the closer on the end of side one because it is a real thrasher. This is this is actually, for me, this is my least favorite track on this side of the album. I can uh, see that. Yep. I, I really don't like this track at all. It's It plays into uh, again, the thing you don't like. <laughs> it's fr- is, it's fret all about wanking all over the yeah. place. It's And the thing is, it has like minor key chord changes. Uh-huh. It's got Halford using his low voice. Um, but unlike Leather Rebel, it just doesn't work for me. It feels musically, it feels, it feels like a... a like a like a Halloween nursery rhyme, like a spooky nursery rhyme. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I totally understand what you're Here saying. Here comes yep. the metal meltdown. It's like, it's yeah. like the Umpa or Run something. Run for <laughs> your life, Anthony. Run for your life. Yeah, it just the hot. It's so it's it, it, it unfortunately hits my cheese barrier. <laughs> it, it is a bit cheesy. Um, what I think saves this song for me is the thing you probably hate the most about it, which is the solos. I knew uh, you were going to say that. <laughs> I feel like it's got a screaming opening. Uh, obviously, it's. It's uh, KK and then Glenn to open up the song, and then the actual song. This is a trade-off solo song. So it's KK, then Glenn, then KK, then Glenn, and then they harmonize. So to me, like that, that's what I came to the show for. So I that keeps me in the song because I think the actual main riff, especially like the chorus riff, is just super cheesy, as you said. So it, it is not. It's probably my second least favorite on the first side. So all guns right. blazing, and then this one. Um, yeah, whereas I would say this one and then all guns blazing, but see, you were not so different. Yeah, well, the one that put the thing that puts it over for me is the thing you don't like, which is the solo. So I feel yeah. like the <laughs> solos on this song are better than that on guns blazing. So it, you know, it comes in uh, fourth instead of fifth. Worth mentioning, by the way, we haven't, we didn't actually address this, but the the whole album, this whole album was written by uh, Glenn Tipton, KK Dowling, and Rob Halford. Well, and um, they actually have in the liner notes at the front of the album, they break down the leads. I I have the CD right, right. liner notes here, which is where I was going off of in terms of who but, does but the leads. But all three of one. them are credited equally yes. uh, across like every track, which uh-huh. I think is very interesting. Yep. Yes. And so song five, uh, it is a, it's a big heavy song to end the first side of the album on. I think I might have flipped this and the first song on the second side though. If I was if I was putting the album together, oh really? You think you might have ended side one with Nightcrawler? Yeah, because Nightcraw- oh, interesting. So as we flip over to side two, track six, Nightcrawler.
Yeah, we, we flipped our cassette over, and now we are pushing play on Nightcrawler, which is one of my favorite songs on the album. Um, nah. <laughs> and it's very turbo. It's very turbo. It's very synth. Um, this is a song that would be very much at home on turbo. Or right. the Twin Turbos double album that never came to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is cool in a way because it harkens back to a period of their sound that, for the most part, they were moving on from. But I think it harkens back to it in a good way. This reminds me very much of a King Diamond type song, especially with when when Halford hits, you know, the high notes. It's very mm-hmm. gothic-y. You've got the synth opening. Um and I think this song does a better job with its synthesizers than the other song that we're going to talk about that has the synthesizers in it. Oh, interesting. So, okay. Um, yeah. I I feel like this song starts out a little dodgy, but then gets very sinister. And I like the, you know, kind of single note playing, and then it gets heavier. And I do like the the main chorus riff. Like, it has that saw blade sort of feel to it and it has a very kind of evil sort of feel to it i i really like that and the first time we hear that is like 103 it it just has that razor blade feel to it and then in the second verse the chords they're kind of sliding between as they're playing the the riff so they add a little bit something to it the second time that the verse comes around um i also feel like this is a song where between the toms and the bass drum there's just a wall of sound being created by the drummer. And uh, I think it adds a lot to the song. It's, I, yeah, I'm kind of the opposite of almost everything. That you said. I actually prefer the synths on this one. Uh, sorry, I prefer the synths on the other track because you can barely hear them on this one. You've got, what well, I do like the intro for being atmospheric uh, and having the sort of clean guitar uh, and, you know, a bit of thunder special effects and a bit of choir and stuff. You know, it's like, I, I like that they at least did a bit of atmosphere. It felt at first, this track feels like they're trying to do their, it's their Black Sabbath, almost. Uh-huh. Um, but then the main riff, again, the riff itself kind of so-so. Halford, I think, saves it uh, in the verses, because when you've got the way that the the end of the couplet in each verse, the way he sings it, he follows the descending guitars, exactly. And then he goes uh, right into it, the chorus of Nightcrawler, like, it, just right. the way it rolls right into the chorus is well, very no, that's cool. The, uh, but that's after the, that's after the bridge, the, the, that's after the pre-chorus. I'm talking about the, just the, literally the verse. You know, howling winds keep screaming around as the rain comes pouring down, and the way he, the way he phrases comes pouring down, following the guitars, oh, right, right. Which, yes, yes. and they're unusually phrased as well. I think that is good. That kind of saves the verse for me. The chorus, I don't think, is interesting at all. Uh, that just, it's just like. Puh. Um, <laughs> I love that riff. It, yes, the riff that you just spit out onto the floor is the riff that I like. <laughs> I, know, I know, I know. Um, and then you get this like weird bit where he's reciting this, you know, strange, uh, you know, spoken word bit at the end, and he does yeah. it right, right the way through. Now I don't object to it in principle, but take a break. Like yeah. he literally just reads off four stanzas. Uh, of this, you know, semi-poetry. Yeah, and clearly no... it was, the, you know, the effect of, of like, a summoning ritual that they're, you know, a spell-like uh, sure. sort of thing. That, but, but but you're that, right. I think it goes on a little bit too long and maybe doesn't they work. They could have done so much more with it, yeah. This is um, a song, because the whole song basically resets at about 3 minutes and 25 seconds. And you could make the argument, yeah. like you did with Painkiller, that the song could have ended at that point in time. And had it ended at 3 minutes and 25 seconds, it probably would have been a stronger song overall, because it goes on for almost... 
another two and yeah. a half minutes. It also um, probably wouldn't have had a goddamn fade out <laughs> to end yeah. the track at the end, which I, I think on this track, the way they do it just doesn't work. If they'd done a fade out with like the clean guitar, just slowly getting softer and quieter and a bit of sure. howling wind or something, sure, that would work. But instead, they just go for a traditional fade out. And I'm like, what is this, 1981? Right. <laughs> it's, I, I don't know, yeah. I wasn't, I, I was very disappointed with this track because it starts off promising, as I say, with the atmosphere and stuff. And then for me, yeah, as I said, all the elements that you like about it are the other things that I don't. <laughs> yep, we completely disagree on this song. So, uh, so how, let's see how we fare on the next track, which is uh, track seven, which is Between the Hammer and the Anvil. Between the hammer and the gonad, as my friends and I used to call it, <laughs> because of Rob Halford's singing style, get it? Yes, um, I totally get it. But that, joking aside, this is my other favorite track in the album. Okay, good because this song's awesome. Uh, <laughs> that makes me very happy. Uh, it starts off very sludgy, very sort of uh, yeah, you know, just that. Yeah, sliding, it's a really good intro. Yeah, it builds slow, and nicely, it ends the same it? way too. Um, but then you get this scream at 40 seconds in, which is that soaring, this this much like the um, Hell Patrol, has a very soaring sort of uh, feel to it in my mind. Right, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, again, the main riff is kind of nothing to write home about, but again, Halford's vocals, I think, kind of elevate it. Uh, and, you know, sort of make it more than it is, which is what you want, you know, in the synergy between a, a vocalist and a guitarist, obviously. Um, but what really saves it and sort of raises this above other tracks on the album for me is the chorus. Um, the the build-up, like the first line, the you know, the burning sermons and all that, is a good build-up. And then between the hammer and the anvil and the guitar riff that follows it are... That's great. That oh, is absolutely awesome. spot on, yeah. Yeah, what I love is the first verse is played very plain Jane, right? And then before they go into the chorus, it's just ding, 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 between the hammer. And then in the second verse, they play those same three chords, and then you get that sliding riff behind it as yeah. they go into the chorus. Love that. Um, you also get some fills that come in in the second, or you get that, it's not even a fill, it's just, it's sort of the background riff that's going on that comes into the second verse. So I love how it builds from first verse to second verse. 
Um, the drums are just freaking huge again. I think the solo absolutely rips in this one. It's KK and then Glenn. And then the way the song builds back in after the solo, I think, is great. But my favorite part of the song is from four minutes and ten seconds on, because this is another song that just ends by driving home everything you love about the song in an even bigger and better way as the song. <laughs> like, I just love that when he's screaming storm warning, but there's no fear. That's another yeah. chill inducing moment for me. Just such a soaring, like charging into battle anthem. I just, I love this song. Yeah. It's uh, the, the middle eight, uh, the halftime middle eight is good as well. Uh, I would have, I would have liked something like you know some kind of rhythmic breakdown rather than just effectively playing the intro over again. But uh-huh. I do at, le- at least they did it, and they didn't, you know, they left, they just let it breathe. It hasn't got. I mean, yes, the solo comes afterwards, but at least that bit hasn't got somebody going blah, 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 all over the top, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I think is nice. When you say uh, that, all I hear is like, I don't want like two things of hot fudge on my Sunday. I just want some, I just go light on the hot fudge. I just want one cherry on my Sunday. <laughs> and I'm like, dump all the cherries on the Sunday. All the cherries, yes. but it has a proper ending as well. It um, does, yeah. And, and like, I like that it repeats that sludgy bit, which when I first yeah, heard it, I yeah. didn't like. But the more I listen to the song, I actually think it bookends the song really well. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's I think that's a great sort of thematic intro and outro to the song. Uh, and the way it sort of fades, it does fade, but it's it's only on those two chords, and it fades straight into the next track, which I think is a nice you know, a nice thing for them to do because, again, not the sort of thing that a band like Priest would do a lot of, frankly. So let's talk about the next track, track eight, A Touch of Evil. first (laughs) uh despite what i said earlier i do like this song i like it probably for different reasons than you do i think this song may be my favorite solo on the entire album um and glenn tipton does the solo for this one i think it's a really emotional matches the tone of the song really good um i don't like the synths on this song at all I like the beginning one. I like the the sort of, you know, the the sort of rolling thing, but I don't like the boom that they do after every line in the uh <laughs> in the, like that to me is super cheesy. So it it but again, 
this is not out of character for Judas Priest. Right. So, you know, th- there's plenty of this in their history, and so it's not that out of character for them, but it has a gothic feel to it. Again, it feels a little King Diamondy to me. Um, well, and the producer, uh, Chris Sangaridis, yep, I'm that's guessing is said. how you say it, yep. um, who is a very notable, uh, especially 80s metal producer, produced lots and lots of albums, and had not the first time that he produced Priest, I don't think, either. But this um, was the first time that they didn't work with Tom Allen. Right. This was the first album that they didn't. So it, it does have it that that also lends to the different feel of this album. Right. Um, but he is, this is the only track on which he is also credited. Yep. Tipton Downing and Halford are still credited, but Sangaridis is also credited. And I'm going to guess that that's because of the keyboards. I'm going to guess that he, that's probably him playing the keyboards. Uh-huh. Um, I. I like the keyboards on this. I, I, li- I like the main riff. This is one of the few songs where I actually like the main riff because it kind of breathes. The keyboards add a nice bit of atmosphere to it. Uh, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, I like the first 30 seconds or whatever, but I don't think this is Halford's best performance. In fact, I think it's his worst performance on the album. Uh, I feel like vocally. this album, this song could be the background music to the club scene in the first Blade movie. <laughs> where the strobe lights are going on yeah, in the background. Yeah. Like, and, uh, but instead, like, there would be an added part to the scene where, like, someone's trying to seduce him. You know right. what I mean? Like, that, that is sort of what it feels like. But yeah. where I think this song the- is completely saved is at 2 minutes and 55 seconds, you have the acoustic notes that are being mirrored by the electric notes. Uh, and that that gets played out, and then that becomes the background for the guitar solo, which I think is the best guitar solo on the album. And, well, I was going to say that I also don't, don't like the chorus. I think the chorus is really weak on this Yeah, song. it's not great. Um, and I was laughing earlier when you mentioned how much you love the solo on this, because my only note on the solo on this track is, mid-late solo feels like it takes days to get to the end. <laughs> You're killing me. You are literally <laughs> killing me on this album. <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> but yes, so that is the part that saves this song for me. And... You know, the part where he screams, you're possessing me, I think that's kind of pretty cool, too. And then when the chorus kicks in after that, I actually like that part of the song. So I do feel like, even though the chorus is kind of cheesy, there are parts of the song where it is executed in a pretty good way, and that that's one of them. So I don't dislike this song, but again, the theme here is the three longest songs on the album, I think two of them are fall short. One of them is right. uh, Metal Meltdown, a little bit too long, uh, and I also feel like this song could have been a solid minute, minute and a half shorter, and have been fine for it. Yeah. Well, and this and Metal Meltdown are, you know, for me, they're the two weakest songs on the album. Um, you know, it actually, not just in composition, but in execution as well. Um Whereas the rest of the album, as I've said, whether or not I'm a huge fan of it, I will grant you that it is, you know, flawlessly executed. But mm-hmm. I, I think, yeah, as I say, no, both of those tracks just don't do not do it for me at all. Um, uh, and then, if, is it even worth covering track track nine? It goes, track nine uh, follows straight on from track eight, and that is Battle Him. Um, but it's like, it's, what is it? Less than two minutes? It's 56 seconds. It's not even one minute. Right. It's less yeah. than one minute. Yeah. Um, it's, what is there to say about it? It's fine. It's atmospheric, I mean, but it is so short. Do you know what occurred to me? I wondered if they were contractually obliged to supply a minimum 10 track album. I bet you they were. 
and they did nine tracks, and this was actually a really long intro to track 10, sure. to, what it, to what is track 10, One Shot at Glory. And yep. they were like, oh shit, we haven't got enough songs. I know, why don't we chop off that intro and make it its own song? Brilliant, yep. you're a genius. <laughs> and you're right, I mean, I, they it's atmospheric in that it feels like you're, if we're following along the story of this album that, that the painkillers come to save mankind, it has the feeling of preparing for a final battle. Right. Yeah. I mean, so the I, boss battle is to come. We're yep. getting ready for the boss battle. And it is just a very brief, you know, we've got everybody. It, it's the, it's the Braveheart moment, you know, where right. we're, is we're everybody just, here? Is right, everybody let, accounted let's for? Yeah. Let's charge. Yeah. And, then and again, we, nothing wrong with it. It is a good atmospheric piece of music, but it's so short that it's almost impossible to, to judge it by itself. So then um, we go into the final track it, on the album. Right. And I don't think there's even a gap, is there? It literally goes straight into. Track 10, which is One Shot at Glory. You can on the if you're listening to the MP3 version, you can hear just just the track change over, but that's it. Right, right, but yeah, yeah on a CD or something, it just right, it was segues straight, into, straight it. into yeah. Um, uh, it is a fitting. We've talked a lot on this show about the sort of making sure that your final track fits and feels like a final track, like a closer. Uh, and I think this one does do that, especially with the drums. It really does feel like. This is the this is the end. This is the triumphant sort of victorious moment yep. of the album. This is the climax. Totally agree. My first note is great finisher. Like it, it's just a great finishing track. The you know the main riff is this has it, the song has this galloping tempo to it and has kind of a basic main riff, but there's a lot of fills. The chorus is very anthemic. It has that soaring feel to it, and it has that charging into a battle that you're outnumbered but confident that you're you know going to win sort of thing. It, it has that sort of empowering type of feel to it. And again, much like some of the other songs on this album, at 558, uh, this song drives home again everything that's great about it in the way that it finishes. Uh, just the it, way they're sliding the that good, riff, yeah, like, yeah. Dan-ew, Dan-ew, like it's just, and the fills over the background of it, and he's screaming, I can hear the battle cry, I still hear the battle cry, I still see the banners fly, and the you know, riff is just playing furiously behind it, chills, like just freaking awesome, what an awesome way 
to end the album. I, I do wish that the chorus was more had more impact because it is the final chorus. Yes. Uh, and I think that's partly because he sings down at the end of the chorus yep. rather than uh, like if he'd done a trademark Halford, you know, and screamed the final line of, you know, of the chorus one shot at glory. I, I think that really would have given the track a completely different character, yep. in, which in is why, it fi- which is why it finishes so strong. Right. Cause that's what he does. Right. He says right. One shot at glory. And then he goes super high and then the riff kicks in behind yep. it and it just comes to this crescendo and you're like, Oh, it, but maybe because he didn't do that for the rest of the song, that's why it feels so freaking amazing at the end of the song. But he nah. just nails the end of the song. Yeah, it didn't stop him in like many songs in the pre- <laughs> previous songs on the album. So I don't sure. know. Um, I did. I, I was sort of amused when the first time I was listening to it and looking at the the time uh, remaining on the track. It's one of those tracks, literally just under halfway through, and oh, we've run out of lyrics. Uh, like, you know, you look at the lyric sheet and this is, there are a lot of lyrics in this song and they are all over in the first half of the song. Uh-huh. Um, and, and of course, you know, and, I, and as soon as that happened, I was like, oh, oh, you know what that means? <laughs> like, it means the best part's coming. It yes. means a, a tween guitar solo yep. attack. It <laughs> means the best part is coming. Anthony, <laughs> let me ask you a question. You're going into the last battle. You're fighting the boss battle. There is the lead up to the battle, and then there's the battle, and the battle is the guitar solo. So you have to have the battle <laughs> in the song. You can't just be, you know, it, like, yes, yeah, Spider-Man likes to talk to his villains while he's fighting them. But for the most part, when it's battle time, you that's that's the combat. That's where the guitar <laughs> solo comes in. Uh, I was just, I, I just amused myself because as soon as it happened, I could feel my internal reaction being like, "Oh God, three minutes yep. solo." <laughs> yeah, you're like, my brain is rolling its eyes. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, but, I'm like driving off the side of the road because I'm headbanging so hard when they get to that part. Of the song. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it is, it is an absolutely, you know, again, not my favorite chance on the album, but it's an absolutely fitting, appropriate yep. track to close out the album. Uh, That's exactly it, how I feel about it. It, it. it achieves its aim. It makes you, it reminds you of what you've been listening to. And yeah, if you're into it, is the sort of track that would make you go, oh, okay, now let's go back to track one and play it all over again. Yep. So in Which that is respect, what a good finisher does, absolutely. Exactly, yeah. So in that respect, it absolutely works. Whew. <laughs> and that is Painkiller. That uh, is Painkiller. Yeah, wow. Um, I mean, like I said, you know, not they're not my favorite band it's not my favorite album but uh you know i will i've got a lot of time for priest just as a band and rob halford as a a musician and a person frankly you know i've seen many interviews with halford as well and he comes across very well in interviews he's clearly you know a sort of uh an intelligent thoughtful man who has done his share of daft stuff you know of stupid shit uh haven't we all you know but is kind of very self-aware uh and kind of i think you know he's one of it comes across as one of the guys who's aware of his role in the pantheon of metal but is also also still a little bit humble about it you know he doesn't have the the giant ego that that some do (laughs) yeah and it and and just I don't know where people who are listening to the show fall in terms of their fandom of Judas Priest or what, you know, their familiarity with it. I will say that I feel like his return album, which is 2005's Angel of Retribution, is great uh, if you like, the, you know, the traditional Priest sound. And I wasn't a big fan of Nostradamus, but Redeemer of Souls that came out in 2014, 
I thought was a really good album as well. Um, as I mentioned, Sad Wings of Destiny, probably my favorite Judas Priest mm-hmm. album. But I want to now go back and listen to the Thrash trilogy, which is this one, Jugulator, and Demolition, and just kind of circle those three albums and put them together either in a playlist or you know, listen to them in, in one long listen, because I think that's an interesting era of Judas Priest, which again... There is no jugulator and there is no demolition if there is no painkiller. Without painkiller. Exactly. I don't think I've ever heard uh, uh, an Owens Priest track, actually. Not knowingly, anyway. Oh, um, they're heavy. There's like a the, bit, the, it's, it's, it's faster and thrashier than painkiller, for sure, than the right. title track on this album. Maybe I should give them a listen. But I was going to say, it's a bit like uh, when Blaze Bailey took over f- uh, Maiden, you know, took over from Bruce Dickinson. I heard, like, I think one track... Because they released it as a single here in the UK and they were on top of the pops. Was it Tail Gunner? Uh, no, Tail Gunner was Dickinson. No, no, wait. No, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, I think it was called Man on the Edge or, oh God, I can't even remember now. What was, I do the, remember, uh, was it No Prayer for the Dying? Was that the, No, I don't, I don't pre- have my history set with uh, Maiden, but. I'm, I'm pretty sure that that was, uh, that was a Dickinson album. Hang on a second. Let's look this up. Yeah, let's look it up. Live Wikipedia. Blaze Bailey era. The X Factor. Oh, okay. Right, yeah. First of two albums by the band to include Blaze Bailey, formerly of Wolfsbane. Yeah, that's it. And the track was... Man on the Edge. Yeah, it was called Man on the Edge. Uh, and and it, I just remember listening to it and thinking, this may as well be Dickinson. Like, you know, it's just, it doesn't sound, the band didn't change their sound at all, despite the fact that they had a completely different vocalist who did sound very different to Dickinson. Um, but in terms of the song itself, I was just like, it's just Maiden again. And, you know, a Maiden or another of those bands who I like some of their stuff, Probably like them better than Judas Priest, if I'm honest, but I'm not. And I've seen them live a couple of times, uh, and they are great live, but I'm not a huge Maiden fan. Um, yeah, I like some of their songs better than a lot of Judas right. Priest stuff, but I don't have a love for a particular album. I think I posted this on the Facebook page, but for Iron Maiden, I kind of came to them a little bit later than some of the other bands that I was listening to at the time, and... Because I felt like when I first listened to them, they were a little too almost proggy for me. Um, but the album that I bought, the first album of theirs that I bought was Somewhere in Time. And so for right. me, that is probably my favorite Iron Maiden album. And I know that's not a super high pick for a lot of Iron Maiden fans. But that, for me, um, was one of them. And a lot of it had to do with The Wasted Years, which was a high you know, uh, play right. video on MTV at the time. Well, and I've said before that like my favorite one of my favorite live metal albums and probably my favorite maiden album is live after death. Uh, because I do think they have some cracking songs, but overall most maiden albums don't have that consistency for me. Uh, you know, I like, I'm one of those sort of fair weather (laughs) fans. If you like who I'll pick out a few tracks from each album and go, yeah, those are great tracks, but the rest of them, I just don't care about at all. Um, and uh yeah and so as i say when i heard when blaze bailey took over and i was just like it's just maiden again but with a guy who sounds a bit different uh mm. i you know i wasn't particularly interested <laughs> right but yeah if the if the ripper owen stuff does actually sound different for priest than the halford era maybe i should give it a listen well i mean it sounds different in that it sounds like it sounds like the 
voice of painkiller is what they zeroed in on. You know what I mean? Right, right. Like, and said, that is the sound that we want. We want that high screeching Rob Halford, you know, painkiller-esque era. That's what we want. Um, But it's worth listening to because it's super freaking heavy. Right. Well, which is which is why I'm thinking maybe I should give it a listen. Maybe I'll like it much better. <laughs> yeah, I was just looking at some of these Maiden albums. It's funny. The Maiden albums that I tend to like gravitate towards are ones that a lot of people like are not big fans of. Like the other one that I was uh, listened to a lot was Dance of Death, which came out in 2003, which I don't think got a huge... Uh, no, I, th- I thought you were going to say Seventh Son of a Seventh Son or Power Slave. No, you know what, though? When I was in high school, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son was an album that was was a lot of people were listening to at the time, and I couldn't get into it. And that was one of the reasons that I was like, I don't know if I like Iron Maiden that much. Like, I like some of their songs. You know, I right, like right. Run to the Hills. I like um, Aces High. I like, you know, stuff like that. But I like... That was an album that was super popular. I remember a kid that I went to high school with had that as a patch on the back of his jacket. And so I was checking out that album. I'm like, I don't think I I don't think I'm that big of an Iron Maiden fan. And uh but I recognize them, much like you recognize Priest. I right. recognize Maiden as they're humongous. I mean, I'm taking yeah. my kid to see Iron Maiden. Like uh, clearly I I love all of their hits and I had a bunch of their albums, but they were they were not one of my biggest Bands, sure. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So uh, before we get to next episode's homework, uh, let us say, as always, to everyone, thank you for listening, uh, especially to this one. I have a feeling I haven't edited it yet, but I have a feeling this is going to be a long one. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Just because we were away for a while, you know. <laughs> I think I think it ends up. I think they all end up being standard operating procedure of two hours or so. So that's oh, that's, this is going to be more than two hours. Mark my words. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, and remember, if you enjoyed the show, please spread the word. Rate us on iTunes. I know it sounds silly, but that really, really does help because th- they have algorithms that you know promote and push things up the rankings and stuff according to reviews and ratings. So that really does help us. Uh, and of course, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out. If you want to get in touch, go to thrash it out podcast.com for links to uh, uh, the show email and mine and Brian's Twitter accounts. And, of course, you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Yeah, and and please, on the show notes for this one, I would love to hear what people's favorite Judas Priest album is. And if you have one, like, from the old era and the new era, and uh, what they thought of the Ripper Owens era of Judas Priest, because that's always interesting. Yeah, yeah, well, and he's the sort of subject that I, I feel will engender a lot of debate. <laughs> It already did on the on the preview when we when we right. said that we were uh, when we were putting that out there, but uh, yeah. but they're they're one of those bands, much like Maiden, that you, there's a lot of albums to choose from, and right. everybody has a favorite depending on where they came in. Yeah, they're like it's like Doctor Who. There's so much history that depending on where you started listening, that's probably going to be your favorite era. Sure. Uh, so, and I'll bet you that's the only time that Judas Priest have ever been compared to Doctor Who. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, right. Okay. So my choice for homework for the next episode. Now I am for this volume, uh, for this volume only, I am going to do a themed choice. Okay. Uh, and that is, I've decided all of my picks for volume three are going to be albums that changed the landscape of metal. Whoa. Okay. Uh, I want to do like sort of historically significant albums. Um, now, some of some of the albums we've already done 
would qualify for that, you know. So we've already covered things like, uh, well, St. Anger probably doesn't count. But, you know, we, we have covered some of the bands anyway who've put out albums that have changed things like that. Um, and Turn Loose the Swans, from which we did from My Down Bride, for example, you know, you can... There's so many modern doom bands that like will cite that as that's where doom metal kind of began. That was where sure. it was solidified. Dio, Holy Diver, you know, things like that. So, uh, you know, we've already done some ones, but there are some bands that released albums that changed the face of metal that we still haven't covered. And so next show, our next episode, your homework is Paranoid by Black Sabbath. Whoa, We're going okay. all the way back, all the way back to arguably the birth of heavy metal as we know it. Wow. Yeah. Can I, can I make a confession? You've never listened to it. Oh, I've listened to it. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't like Black Sabbath. Really? Wow. Okay, yep. th- this is where we're going to fall out then. <laughs> yeah, and I think the Dio era is far superior than the oh, era of Black Sabbath. Oh, man, no, no. I'm going to leave you, you with that. Chew now you're that killing for me. the next few weeks. Yep, that's right. <laughs> oh, man, revenge, revenge. That is, that's where it comes in, absolutely. Don't worry, but you'll yeah. have plenty of revenge on me. It's so funny that you mentioned that you're, you have a theme, because I have a theme kind of two for this season. Um, and we could talk about that next time, but I did, oh, okay. I okay. did think about my approach to this season and like, what, what have we done the first two volumes and what, what I like to accomplish that. And I kind of love the fact that we do volumes because it gives you a framing device for how to approach. Right. You know, well, it, let's it, just take a break and reassess and think how we want to do it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And I, I do like that. So yeah, I've been uh, thinking along the same lines of like, I think I kind of have a theme for, uh, this season of the show. So that's cool. I'm super excited about that because I want, I want to understand and click with how important blacks, I know how important they are to music, but like why people love them so much. Right, like right, I want to yeah. find the part that I'm missing because well, I do that, feel like I'm missing something. Well, and that and the theme is partly why I've chosen this album. Paranoid was their second album, not their first. And I'll get into it in the later show, but there is a very, deliberate and specific reason that i have chosen paranoid rather than their first album black which is just called black sabbath um so yeah paranoid by black sabbath from 1970 uh so you know before even i was born (laughs) bring it i can't wait really are going back right to the birthplace Judas priest uh, and black sabbath to start volume three what a a way to start it out man yeah all right all right so uh Go and grab a copy of that, give it a listen, and we will see you back here next time. Awesome.